Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who Update 87, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? I uh, appreciate the fact that uh, your intros are exactly like they were for the previous show, even though this is a completely different show. Well, this is the second, you know, volume of the completely brand new show that's right. nothing like its predecessor. Okay, good. A lot of Which, subtle differences, way, probably. Now, in all honesty, we, we, we made a lot of joking about that last time. But you know what? Hitting a new number one sure did bring in a lot of new folks. Uh, we seem to get a lot more buzz than we've had the last few episodes. And uh, it, it got more attention than it has in a I lot don't, of people I don't, are, I don't get that? it. Well, people were not excited over us covering Zoot Sputnik? I mean, what? Well, I think, I think Zoot Sputnik maybe didn't have, or um, who was the other Mort? The one with the prison guy. Um, oh, Nodar. Nodar, right. Uh, Nodar, you know, was, you know, I think people were writing it out on Nodar to come in on the updates because maybe that's the version they had bought, you know, or something like that. But anyway, we are back for the second volume of Who's Who, Update 87. We're very excited about this, folks. Um, before we get into it, though, let's take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with shipping for orders uh, – free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got? Based on the uh, drawing of Commissioner Gordon by David Mazzuccelli, one of the great comic book artists I think ever to do it, Batman Year One by Frank Miller and David Mezzicelli. Hardly really needs any recommendation by anybody. Insuck Trades has it for 14 The regular I keep doing this. The regular price is $14.99. Insuck Trades price is $8.69. That's 42% off. It is, of course, the four-issue story. The, the uh, origins of Batman Plus includes original pencil, script pages, promotional art, unseen Mezzicelli, Batman stuff, and more. I, I don't even, you know. What do I need to say? This is this is a masterpiece, one of the great superhero comic series of all time, back in a time when Frank Miller didn't hate comic books and the people who read them. So uh, Batman, you're one. You can't beat it. Is that, like, uh, is that like an adaptation of Batman Begins? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Or, or is this an adaptation of the animated movie Batman, you're one? Yeah, yes, it's that too. Okay, great. All right, good. You know, I actually have that in the original hardcover edition. Yeah, I, th- I do too. Somewhere in some in some box. It's. I, it, I think it's as good as the Dark Knight, and I think the Dark Knight Returns is one of the great achievements. And I think Batman Year One, in his own way, is is just as good. I would say Batman Year One's better, but that's okay. just my take. All it's right. uh, they're very different stories. But anyway, I also have a Batman Commissioner Gordon one. Oddly enough, uh, I have Batman Turning Points trade paperback. This collects the miniseries Turning Points as a five issue story. Each volume is a different tale. Uh, in a different time period in Gordon and Batman's relationship. The first one starts out just about the time of year one. 
uh, the, like I think the second, or, I think the third issue takes place like right after Killing Joke and has to do with Barbara and what she's doing uh, after Killing Joke and, and how she gets up in Batman's business and stuff like that. And it's uh, I'm I'm actually reading it right now. I got it from our public library. It's really good and well worth buying. Uh, it's got a lot of different writers. It's got Greg Rucka, Chuck Dixon, Ed Brubaker. I mean, really. Just right there. That should be enough to sell this. Uh, art's got Steve Lieber, Dick Giordano, Paul Pope, some others. Cover art by Tim Sale. Page count, 128 pages. Normally retails for $14.99. You can get it for 42% off right now, so you can get this sucker for only $8.69. And that is a steal, and it's a nice, nice read. Very enjoyable. So, folks, uh, check out both Year One and Turning Points over at InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Woo, okay. So, again, Volume 2. Um, thankfully, no more Roman numerals, so those two eyes, which would have confused the mess out of Rob. You don't have to worry about that like we had the last time around. Uh, just as a reminder, this is a five-issue miniseries. And um, as you as you look through these pages, this is your first time listening to Who's Who. With the entries, the characters get pretty much each character will get its own full page entry. In the foreground, it's going to be that character in full color with uh, with their logo, and then in the background is going to be a single color image, which is called the Surprint, which apparently is legit. Anyway, uh, and the Surprint will depict sort of like either the origin or some aspect of the character, and should also have a close up of their face without their mask. The text is going to have the personal data, like their height, their weight, all that business, history, powers, yada, yada. And our goal as we go through this is to describe the images in such a way that you don't actually need to have the comic in front of you. Because what I don't want you doing is driving down the highway, listening to your uh, zone of phone, and holding Who's Who Volume Update 87 Volume 2 in your hand and trying to pay attention to the highway. So this way, uh, as we describe it, um, you'll be able to. And if you don't, later on, you can check the internets and go to our Tumblr page and see some of these. Rob, what's that Tumblr page? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. And we'll post eh, 10, 12, 15 of these up there. So, And if you're going to live tweet, by the way, which some folks do, Michael Bailey did this the past time around, please use the hashtag poundfwpodcast. That way we'll see your tweets, everyone else will see your tweets, and we'll tell you why you're wrong. So, um, the, Again, uh, this one is issue number two, cover dated September 1987. However... If you want to get this sucker fresh off the stands, you're going to have to step into the quantum accelerator and vanish back to June 2nd, 1987. And thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that date. So, Rob, we got a cover here by Joe Brzezowski and Dick Giordano. What you, gonna, what you got? Uh, yeah, not one of the better ones. Uh, I mean, the characters are interacting in fun ways. I like Chip riding on Flash's shoulder, but the lack of... Um uh, consistent perspective is driving me bonkers. It's weird. Um, it's the, really strange. The Flash is smaller than Electric Warrior, and yet he is in front of him. Uh, ditto Catwoman, who is seemingly standing on a ray blast that the Electric Warrior is shooting out. Well, she's, um, she's balanced on the ray blast and the floating DC bullet. Right, and the DC bullet. <laughs> um, I do like Cheetah way off to the right. That's kind of a nice – she's off there by herself. It's a nice use of that little dead space on to the right of the uh, table of contents. But, yeah, it's – it's you know, it's eh. – I'm just not a fan of these ones where the perspective is all wonky. I would say for this one, the art – not perspective, but the actual art is nice. Uh, the characters look pretty good on model. Um, you know, at this point, Wally looks just like Barry. So it, this looks like Barry running at you. In fact, someone said that on Facebook too. Said, "Oh, it's Barry with Chip." I'm like, oh, "I don't know, that's Wally." But um, 
but otherwise everybody's pretty on model. It's just the design isn't that great, as you said. Um, you said there's some interactivity. There's not much. Most of it is they're all standing in the same place, but there's not a lot well, of it. Well, all right. You've got uh, – what's his name? The, the Gold Star the, and – Dr. Uh, Urbix yeah. uh, talking to Gold Star, and you've got – What's his name? Uh, the the chroma about to face off against Flare, Catwoman. Okay. Catwoman in an electric warrior interacting. The Duke of Oil pinching the uh, table of contents. And yeah, I some, love that. I love some, that. Duke of or yeah, Duke of Oil's arms going all the way around and actually pinching right by the number one and actually cracking. the Yeah, table you can of actually contents. see that, which I thought that's a nice detail. So, and you see Doctor Moon looking irritated. I don't exactly know why, but so you know they are. It's not. It's not too bad. It's just. I just wish they'd found a way to, you know, do it sort of consistently in terms of the perspective. And one of the unusual things, we're going to talk more about this later, is on the cover, in the foreground at the bottom, usually there's like one character bigger than the rest, not the main image. And the main image is clearly Flash here. But um, there's there's a foreground, usually someone, in, in this case, it's Electric Warrior. He takes up a very large portion of the bottom of the page. And um, kind of an unusual character since he's outside the DC Universe. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Yep. All right. Yep. Uh, let's open it on up. Let's see what's on the inside cover, Rob. On what this... is on the inside cover, Rob? Okay, calm down. On the inside cover is the weapons check feature, which is a schematic of Electric Warrior. So, you know, hey, kids, you love Electric Warrior. We're giving it to you. So uh, <laughs> this is a breakdown of him. I, I used to buy this book, but we'll get to that when we get to the, the feature. So, yeah, there's a whole detail of his leg and his arm cannon and his head and all this stuff. It looks pretty pretty nifty, actually. You know, I, I like it. It's uh, I, Again, I don't – I guess they weren't getting any letters yet at this point, so they were just doing the weapons check bit, but it's, it's a nice little feature. Well, most of the letters in Volume 1 were just kvetching anyway. Right, so. yeah. The who's who were particularly <laughs> pissy letters. It was. It is a very nice sketch. Uh, it's a very cool schematic. By the way, I forgot to mention – I because I just got this note uh, the other day. Martin Gray, one of our listeners, pointed out on the cover, uh, on the index, where the name Faye Gunn is on page 23, there's an extra space in between Faye and Gunn. Yes, right there is. <laughs> and I know a guy who's got a real problem with double spacing. So uh, I do. I don't like double. Well, <laughs> I'm not a fan of the double space, especially when I have to do it at work. That's just, it's just not fun at all. But, you know, hey, I don't have, it's not my job to correct who's who. That was Brenda Pope. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, by now, it's uh, Art Young. He's the Art copy Young, editor. Art Young, yeah. Where, yeah, well, where have you gone, Brenda Pope? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Uh, <laughs> um, yes. Quick quick thing. I, I forgot a new feature that I'm doing with the updates that I forgot to cover before we got rolling here. Um, one of the things I was trying to do is put this issue sort of in perspective for you as to when this was on the shelves. So uh, just to give you a perspective of some of the other books that DC was publishing at the time um, – these are some of the longer-running books to, I'm going to start with. Like, Batman was on issue 411, which is when Max Co- Allen Collins and Dave Cochran was doing the book. <laughs> Detective Comics was just finishing up year two. Um, Bat- Superman was only on issue number nine, John Burns. But Action Comics was on 592, so very close to issue 600. Firestorm was on issue 63, only one month away from his huge, huge, huge change. Um, Green Lantern was on 216. Infinity Inc. was on 42, so they're approaching the end of their run. Legion of Superheroes, the, the Baxter book, was on issue 38. New Teen Titans, the Baxter book, was on 35. Outsiders, Baxter book, was on 23. Then we started to get into some of the newer, the Young Turks at this point. So Secret Origins was only on issue number 18. 
Blue Beetle was on issue 16, so I'm sure we'd had uh, several good uh, care packs appearances by this point. Uh, Booster Gold was on issue 20, very near his end. Electric Warrior was on issue 17 of 18. Uh, then the, the brand new books, Captain Atom was only on issue seven. Hard to believe at this point. The Dr. Fate miniseries was only on issue three. Yeah. He doesn't even make it in the update. You know, given the big changes in the Dr. Fate mini, you think he would have been in here. Flash was only on issue number four. Uh, Longbow Hunters was issue two. Justice League number five. That's such a good issue. Spe- I think, isn't that the one where he punches out, uh, Guy Gardner, I think? I think so. Spectre number six, Suicide Squad number five, Wonder Woman number eight, Young All Stars number four. So I, I just wanted to put you, sort of put you in the picture because there's a ton of stuff in here that's going to echo back to like Young All Stars is all over this thing, and yet they're only on issue four. You know, we've seen a lot of Suicide Squad already; they're only on issue five. Flash is in here too, only on issue four. So these are all you know really early in their run still. And you know what else is not in here? I, I realized today did not make it into the update. There's no Aquaman update, and. Admittedly, it was mostly just a costume, but it could have been worthy of an update. You know, he was a big enough character. They could have fit him in there. Yeah, yeah, he deserved it. There was enough of a change of his scenario. To, he gets it later on in that appendices thing that they do. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That's all I got. Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> By Alan Davis. Uh, a great way to start. Uh, any member of the Bat Family drawn by Alan Davis, I am totally on board for this is, uh, they are smooshing together the whole Golden Age, uh, Silver Age versions at this point. Because this is post-crisis, so they're just saying, so this says the first appearance is Batman number one, even though, of course, this is not the, that, that Catwoman. Um, I like the fact that she is listed as 5'7", which is still taller than the average woman in real life, but, like, not as tall as the typical DC or Marvel superhero woman. You know, so that's actually, you know, somewhat, I don't want to say realistic proportions, because if you look at this drawing, you see that she does not have realistic proportions. But uh, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, it's 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 an attempt to make her look a little more a little more normal. This is just a wonderful drawing. I, Alan Davis, in my mind, can do no wrong. And he certainly does not do that here. She is gorgeous. The shadows are are perfect uh it's it's highly sexualized without sort of being dirty it's it's just an amazing amazing drawing so uh great great way to start the book dude uh you know dave stevens did the catwoman wasn't it dave stevens who did the catwoman yes, in did the, the golden Museum? age one yeah yep and now we get into alan davis doing this one i, I first page i'm thinking i need a cold shower already Woof. i mean this is smoking hot i mean this is a hell of a hell of a as you said sexualized drawing just you can feel it rolling off the page. Um, one thing on the origin, too, it, it, as you read through the origin, they, this is post-year one. So this is Selena Kyle talking about the prostitution and all right. the other things that she right. did. So this is very year one, Selena Kyle. He fits in. Alan Davis manages to fit in lot, lots managed to fit fit in lots of great little detail. Oh, I'm sorry, it's very late. Easy for you to say. Yeah, we see Catwoman without her mask, and they see her. Uh, we see the bifurcated relationship she has with Batman. Because in the middle section, she's hitting him with her whip, and then in the bottom panel, she's putting her arms around him, and then he is slightly resisting, which is perfect. That is that slightly. that is slightly that is their <laughs> that is their relationship right there. Is is that little panel? Now the text mentions here where she learned his identity. Which, if I remember right, was a Bronze Age story. Um, it wasn't even Doctor Moon that made her forget, if I remember right. Yeah, well, Doctor Moon turns her back into a villain by yeah. messing with her brain and stuff. So I remember they said that was in that. That's that Mike 
Mike Barr, Alan Davis run that I crowed about last month. And okay. th- that story is like really tragic to me. Like you really, there's a great scene of Batman being like just absolutely enraged over that. And it's actually very sad because it's like, you know, she, she, she was, she was kind of going on on the right side and now she started over. So it was uh, that that's a really powerful story. <laughs> Well, folks, if you want more on Batman-related characters and maybe even Catwoman, check out uh, Bailey's Batman podcast. Next up is Cheetah, yet another classic, classic villain uh, repurposed. Now here, this is the full-on post-crisis Cheetah, because it says Wonder Woman second, second series number eight is her first appearance, drawn by George Perez. Uh, fantastic drawing. I mean, it's a great action pose. Cheetah is probably a pain in the ass to draw every month over <laughs> Damn spots. Uh, well, you just but the good part is you don't have to draw a costume; you just draw a naked lady. Well, but you still got to draw all those spots, though. I mean, yeah, they, I they so. you know the the guys that did the hundred and one Dalmatians movie all ended up in insane asylums. So um, George, George did it to himself, though. The, uh, yeah, I mean, right? George does inflict himself. The background is great. There's a close up of her. There's some much action scenes. The, the the background is sort of interacting with the main color figure, although not really. Uh, it's it's the logo is nice and sharp. Uh, it's a really, really great piece. It's, uh, like I said, uh, it's it, Alan Davis and George Perez right in a row. That's fantastic. It's, a, it's another cold shower moment right there. I mean, just woof. Bar- this is the Barbara Ner- Minerva one, as you mentioned. That's why she's got the Wonder Woman number eight appearance because right. the previous cheetahs were previous identities. Right. Um, like I want to be excited by this piece, and the art artistically, it's gorgeous. But it just maybe it's just that Perez Wonder Woman era doesn't do a lot for me. I don't know. I'm I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, it's Cheetah. That's nice. It was a good drawing, um, an incredible amount of detail work, as you said. It is it is gorgeously artistically, but it just doesn't wow me for some reason. Hmm. Here's here's a dumb question. She's naked, right? Uh, I guess. Yeah. And I guess she's technically a furry. I I guess. Where's her nipples? Uh. Comics you know, do. that is, yes, that is, that is not a question for the show to answer. <laughs> um, that's really all I had. <laughs> so if you want more on Wonder Woman, which will definitely not cover this era, because Frank hates it, uh, the Dinah Prince Wonder Woman blog and now podcast. Mm. Uh, next up is Chiller. Cause it's Chiller. A booster gold villain. Chiller. Uh, and if you look in the sir print, you see that he is uh, in the image of Ronald Reagan. So, uh, yeah, this was, I don't really, I don't think I was reading Booster Gold by the eighth issue, so I really have no memory of this guy. And uh, if you like it, you'll get a second bite at that apple later on in the issue. Uh, but basically, of course, he's not really Ronald Reagan. He's a guy assuming the role of Ronald Reagan to, uh, you know, for his nefarious plans. And the, the costume is cool. Uh, he looks really neat. Uh, he's got some, he's got one long-ass gun and then, like, a shorter gun. And he's got, like, a skull face with these big shoulder pad looking. He looks, again, like a lot of Dean Jurgens drawings. He looks like a superpowers figure waiting to happen. Well, this is a pretty cool one. Like, I, I really dig his look. And it was a clever scheme. What he was, he was an assassin. He was going to kill President Reagan and Vice President Bush. And then shape change into President Reagan, pretending to have survived. And then he was going to appoint this other guy, his vice president. Henry Ballard. And then uh, step down himself. So then Henry Ballard, boom, is now president. Was all part of this this scheme is what it was. It was pretty clever. I didn't realize it was so far into Booster Gold's run because I remember this pretty clearly. And I, I guess I collected Booster Gold longer than I thought. So, um, yeah, good stuff. I, I dig it. Um, the art, again, we talked about last issue. Mike DiCarlo um, was a bit of a letdown on the inking. Because we know how strong Dan's pencils are and how strong his Booster Gold stuff is. So it's, 
it's not. I guess the, maybe the inking is just a little too heavy-handed. Is that maybe the way to put it? I, I think so. I, I kind of like it here. And there's another uh, piece later on the Mike DiCarlo inks that he has a heavy hand on, which I also think works. But yeah, most of the time I think he's he's too much. But here, it, I think it kind of works. Okay. So I guess uh, the whole idea is shown without the mask. You've got a close-up of of his creepy warped looking face with no nose and then as you said Ronald Reagan I guess those are both his masks yes. <laughs> uh, by the way I should point out just because I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff presidents do not just appoint vice presidents they they can nominate one and then it's the senate that has to approve them now maybe in the story the chiller finds a way to like you know push it through the system but he did, you don't just pick somebody so you know, it's maybe, comics maybe a slight flaw in his plan <laughs> By the way, a couple of quick things. I mean, they do talk about the Legion in here because the Legion of Superheroes played a role in his Booster Gold issues. And then this also continues the trend of Jurgen's villains that have very minimal background in origins. Because, you know, the, 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 the text here is very, very small. And um, Jurgen's tends to create, you know, so that you, I, guess, I guess part of his plan is so that you focus on the hero. But it seems like he creates villains that are sort of uh, serve their purpose, forward the story, but you don't go get so invested in the villain that you forget about the hero. So, it's an interesting philosophy. And by the way, if you want more on Booster Gold, check out the Boosterific blog. Next up is Chip. Uh, this is probably the point where people really started to wonder if Green Lantern as a concept was worth continuing. Uh, <laughs> it's drawn by Joe Staten. I mean, who I love, but it's a friggin' raccoon as a Green what? Lantern. It's a what? It's a what? Oh, he's a squirrel. He's a squirrel. No! What is he? His name is Chip. Oh, he's a chipmunk. All right. And his race is called a monk. All right, he's a chipmunk. <laughs> it's all not right. a tough one to figure all out. Right. However, most people do think he's a squirrel. Well, all right. He's a chipmunk who wears overalls and has a Green Lantern ring and has Disney gloves on and a bow tie. A bow tie. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I have to wonder if Hal Jordan doesn't at some point just sit around and go, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know? I te- I, being a test pilot's pretty cool. Maybe I could go back to that. I mean, I... I Considering that there is a second uh, member of this race later on in the book, I really think Chip really could have done with just a half page. But he does have a lot of history, i got to say. He's, yes, he he's, does. He's got quite a – I mean, he first appeared in Greenland in 148, so he's not like that new a creation. And I love the artwork. Like I said, big Joe Staten fan, but I just – I don't know. There's just a point where I'm, I'm like, I think we're breaking the goofy meter here. Uh, it really does break the goofy meter. It really, really does. However – Having said that, I love Chip. I, I can't help it. There's something about his ridiculousness that has always appealed to me. He is an adorable, you know, funny comic character. I mean, the kind you would expect in one of, you know, a Looney Tune comic book or I, you know all the names of the old DC funny books. I don't know the names of them. But, you know, you would expect him to show up in one of those. He, and this is probably, I think, the best drawn Joe Staten piece we've seen in Who's Who yet. Um, because the art is exa- looks exactly like what it's supposed to. He looks like a cartoon character. The background art is very sketchy and yet looks really nice. Him and Salak, I think is how you say the guy's name. Yeah, that big the guy with the pink, pink head thing. Yep. And you see him shooting you know, acorns at the ship and stuff. I mean, it's, it's a great-looking piece. It looks really, really pretty. But uh, I, I did want to mention that, though, the thing about most people think he's a squirrel. I, I think I even thought he was a squirrel for a long time. And probably the sad thing about his story is that Crisis completely revamped his history. Uh, well, I, I know, but, like, it's pretty tragic. Like, everything he had set up for himself in his world never happened now. Uh, so when he gets back home, you know, he found his, his entire sector no longer remembered him. 
Uh, in their reality, he had died years before, and his wife was now remarried and didn't recognize him. I mean, his life got hosed by, you know, uh, by crisis. So it's kind of interesting that they took the opportunity to put all this emotional baggage on a cartoon character. So it's interesting. I wish they had, I guess, maybe gone ahead and done that who's who in Green Lantern because – like Alan Moore in particular really introduced a bunch of really fun concepts into the Green Lantern Corps, which I would have loved to learn more about, like Mogo, the planet that's a yeah. Green Lantern, or the, the one Green Lantern who's a mathematical formula. Like that I would have loved to read a who's who listing on as opposed to a chipmunk squirrel or whatever. So <laughs> I'm just saying. Poor but chip. Anyway. Next, um, yes. I was going to say, worth mentioning, it is Green Lantern's 75th anniversary this year. And uh, some folks heading up some of the celebrations is our friends over at the Lantern cast and the friends over at Just One of the Guys. So check those out. Next up is Chroma, an Infinity Inc. villain. He's very festive. He's got <laughs> all sorts of hair flowing in all crazy direction. Uh, this, you know, as it's been established, not a fan of Todd McFarlane. But this piece is actually pretty good. And uh, the background ha- is actual musical notes. And uh, Shag, you did a little bit of research on this. So what did you find out? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's musical notes, and it's clearly just not like a little sketched stuff. This is either a reproduction. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, it's yeah. real. And so uh, I thought to myself, you know what? We know a composer, uh, someone who's you know, educated and a composer in real life. His name's Robert Gross. He goes by the name Martin Stein Refern. So I reached out to Robert and asked him, and I mean, he responded almost instantly. I mean, I was thinking this would take a while to figure out. He says it's Chopin, Walt, um, OP, which I think is short for Opus, 64, number two. So Chopin, Waltz, Opus 64, number two. And he says it's a very uh, intelligent choice because the music is very dark and elegant and seems to fit the character. So Look at that. Nice. Yeah. All right. If that was the work of Todd McFarlane, then good work, Todd McFarlane. And, you know, you mentioned the art piece. I agree. The art piece, I mean, I tend to like Todd more than you do, but I like – I mean, this is really nice. It's, it's a fairly well-drawn character. There's no cape, so I guess Todd figured he'd use the hair to be the crazy, mm-hmm. you know, flowing thing instead. But it sort of works with the character. And uh, other than the color scheme, which isn't Todd's fault, I would assume, uh, it's a pretty nice-looking piece. I like it quite a bit. Yeah. So yeah. Now, the character, though, is sort of weird and generic. I mean, he studied the Earth, he showed up, and then he does this thing where he he produces rainbow energy, which disturbs, <laughs> which creates, I know, <laughs> he, he has his Care Bear heart. Um, anyway, he has, it produces this rainbow energy, which causes electrical disruptions, and he's able to mesmerize his people, people by singing, which is why the notes are in the background and stuff. And anyway, he shows up to study Earth. And then he splits, and that's it. It's, it's, it's almost like it was a side note. I, now, obviously, I haven't read uh, Infinity Inc. number 14 where he shows up. Uh, I think I somewhere tailed off around issue 9 or 10. But um, so I, I, it's kind of a weird-looking character, and, and, and he was around for just a short period of time. But if you want more on him, uh, check out Tales of the JSA. I love that it mentions that he showed up in Los Angeles above an outdoor rock concert. And that just reminds me of, like, how stodgy DC could still be. Because, like, just referring to something as a rock concert, it sounds like your dad talking about it. Like, has, <laughs> have you ever in your life referred to going to a rock concert? You just go to a concert or you go to the whatever yep. the band is playing. You're like, I, I am at a rock and roll event. It just, <laughs> it just sounds very old-fashioned. Coming from a comic book in 1987, I'm pretty much rock and roll was, I think, mostly the predominant art form by this point. But, you know. So he goes to a rock and roll concert, and yet we get Chopin on the background. Hmm. I, I wonder if Todd just grabbed something or whether thought went into that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 
It's it was a lot harder back then. It wasn't like you just pulled off Google. So you know, that's true. Work. Next up, the Church of Blood from New Teen Titans, drawn by Eduardo Barreto. Uh, I don't know that we needed a listing for this. I mean, I know it was a big thing, but Baron Brother Blood got a listing, and I, I just, I don't know. I, I think this is, but New Teen Titans is a big hit, so I guess, you know, what the hell. My notes consist of the word nasty. Because um, if you read the origin in the story here, it's pretty gross. I mean, they, they, they killed all these people and kept their blood underneath the tower, and the people would bathe in it, and the son will always kill the father when he's 100 years old and stuff like that. It's pretty, pretty graphic, pretty gory. Um, uh, you know what? We'll just skip ahead. If, if you want more on Teen Titans stuff, listen to our buddy Tom Panarese. He has that pop culture affidavit blog. He had a series on there called My Life as a Teen Titan, which covers most of the Teen Titans stories. So that would be a, a good place to get more info on that. I will say, I just said for a moment, uh, I, I'm a little surprised that it at no point in the history, because it works in some historical events mm-hmm. in Midnight Church of Blood. It does not mention, uh, what's her name, uh, like the Elizabeth Bathory at all, who is that real life queen that bathed in virgin blood because you thought it would keep her young. Like, that's a real thing. That Good she, Lord, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would think she would have been all over the Church of Blood. Yeah. Like, that's whole, totally her thing, but it, there's no mention of it here, but, you know, who knows. Mm. Uh, next up, Commissioner Gordon. Long <laughs> overdue. Long overdue for a page in Who's Who. Drawn Absolutely. By, drawn by David Mazzuccelli, who I think, is this his only piece for Who's Who? I think it is. Because he pretty much checked out of doing any mainstream comic book art right after year one. He just sort of failed. Yeah, well, yeah, mainstream stuff, true. Um, yeah, that's what, what, yeah which, that's what Which one was first? Was uh, Born Again first or year one? Daredevil. Born, yeah, I think Daredevil was first. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, I, I thought there was something in the first series, but I don't know. I, and I don't want to look it up right now. Oh, wait, now, he so did Riddler. He did the Riddler. Mm, yeah, there it is. But there it is. Yeah, he did yep. the Riddler. Okay. So this might be the la- – I don't know. We'll have to – I mean as we go on, we'll, we'll look. But this might be like the last thing he ever did because like I said, he did not last in superhero comics for long. I mean I don't want to say last. He, cho- he chose stuff. to leave. Yeah. He chose to leave. I'm not trying to right. say left comics. That's why I keep saying mainstream comics. He has had a long career in comics, just not superhero comics by his own design. He did, he did a bunch of amazing work and then he just was like, I'm out of here. This piece is fantastic. Makes Commissioner Gordon look super cool. The shadows, him and Batman, him and his uh, wife and their baby. And then um, there's like a firing range showing that he's a good shot because he gets in a headshot and four chest shots. Good job. First appearance, Detective Comics number 27, of course. The font is very plain, but I'm sure that's on purpose because they wanted to make it look like, like a police form, you know, yeah, something very sure. dull. But, man, the drawing is fantastic. I'm just a monster fan of this guy's work. I, I've yet to see any drawing I've ever seen him do that I didn't like. So, uh, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the drawing of his wife in the background, how simple she, that drawing is. She's hot. I mean, he draws a very beautiful woman's face with three lines. A little, yeah. a little, little like watermelon shape for a mouth, slashes for eyes, little slash for eyes, and you're done. Like, just this guy is like just the epitome of less is more. And uh, I wish they had gotten a chance. I wish he had done more Batman work because I mean the stuff he did was fantastic. But uh, yeah, this is such a great piece. All right, looks like after this, there's a whole bunch of reprints, but he did an issue of Marvel Fanfare. Which, to be fair, could have been sitting in a drawer for years. Yeah, that's what that because Marvel series Fanfare was about. a lot of inventory. Yeah. Uh, he did an X Factor annual. Really? 
Yeah, but it just says 1988. So that could have been very early 1988, you know, the way the annuals work. Um, I'm trying to picture him drawing X-Factor. Uh, then he did a couple of uh, Detective Comics issues, it says here. It says he did 598. Looks like he contributed to issue 600. Did he really? Huh. It, may, it, may have, it may have been a page. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I bought that comic at the time. I don't, yeah, I don't remember. Oh, here you go. He did Bill and Ted's Excellent Comic Book, number two. <laughs> really? Wow, that's what a random credit. And then you get into, like, Negative Burn and right the, after that, the other yeah. stuff he did. Yep, yeah. Yep. How interesting. Wow, yeah. Fantastic. Great stuff. This is such a great listing. And I said, this is, was this probably the number one most, like, demanded supporting character? I think it in was the letters me. page. I think, yeah, but I think in uh, the letters page, this was the guy that came up the most. People were like, Commissioner Gordon, come on. Probably. And when we said our most egregious omission, our own personal ones, uh, he was mine. Absolutely was. Yeah. Now, here's a couple of dumb things for you, though. Just nerdy nitpick stuff. He's, he's alphabetized under the letter C for Commissioner. Right. Yeah, should it be G? Should it be C? There's a lot of these where you'll see where people are alphabetized by their first name. Right. That does, just doesn't sit well with me. But I'm probably Lo- Lois so. Lane was under L O, not L A. So <laughs> I thought you were going for L. I thought you were cracking a joke. No. Um, I find his marital status interesting. It says he's separated. Right. Well, at this point, she left him right after. Did she leave him right after year one? I mean, I don't know. And she been, I think she's been gone a long time. I'm like, if they're still separated all these years. The DC ow. editors are holding out hope. I guess so. I guess so. But, um, and, and of course, obviously, it includes a lot of stuff from year one, which is great. And just, yeah, you, you've given it a whole bunch of accolades that I absolutely agree with. Did, did you talk about how cool Batman looks in the back? Well, no, but I mean, did Kid Mazzuccelli draw Batman and not make him look cool? Is, is well, that even possible? His cape arcs around almost like in a. You know, from left the right side swoops around down to the left side, right side to the left side. It just looks incredible. Yep. His badge is in there, you know. Oh, so good. Yep. All right. There's been no mention of him in Batman v Superman, so I'm guessing he's not appearing in that movie. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just thought well, Batman, Batman's older. Maybe they're just yeah, assuming Commissioner Gordon's gone. Maybe, uh, maybe Barbara will be Commissioner. Yeah, oh, that's true. Uh, next up, Darkwing Duck from... You uh, stole Hawk, my line! Hawkman... <laughs> Hawkman, uh, second series number three. Um, okay, so I'm going to suggest this is the only character that really, in, under personal data, needed to have door clearance as a rating. But uh, this is I, – I, I have no time for this character. I don't care how interesting he might be. He is so ridiculous looking that you just – I'm sorry. You can't take him – I mean I – you look at this guy. This guy is mocked by composite Superman. I mean, this is just the most ridiculous design. It's drawn by Richard Howell and Arn Star. I don't know if Richard Howell designed this character. If he did, um, I, he drew some of the Shadow War stuff. So I mean, he's appropriate yeah. to be drawing Hawkman stuff. Yeah, this whoever whoever drew this, I hope they had a good laugh because this is the most ridiculous goddamn costume, probably in all of DC Comics. And that's and we just talked about Nodar. Uh, <laughs> he is he's he's got like a half bare chest. He's got these super wide '80s shoulder blades, he's, and then he's got these ear wings. That cut, it, just razor, the, it would appear to be razor sharp. Uh, of ear course, wing. and then he's got a gun and a holster. He's got silver boots, and then and in the serpent, appropriately, Hawkman is pasting him one. So it's just, dude, but, the, I, oh. but with a name like Darkwing, 
And uh, it looks like he's got Wolverine claw ports as well, by the way. But anyway, with a name like Darkwing, you know, don't you think this is the beginning of the darkening of the DC Universe? I think he is the herald of the darkening of the DC Universe with a name like Darkwing. <laughs> Please know that my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek. Um, to make things worse, it mentions Hyathis. Thanks, Ange. Um, and then, you know what I think? I think the drawing was so hideous. And again, I don't blame Rich, Richard Howell because artistically he designed it you know the 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 actual drawing is fine and the design is fine uh, as far as the page goes. It's the costume that's hideous. Uh, anyway, I, I think the person writing it got so confused with that picture off of the side because the text doesn't make any sense. It's almost like the two paragraphs got transposed because it talks about him coming to Earth and commanding the Shadow War and all this stuff, right? But then it goes on right after that to talk about how he helped plan, you know, form the police force, and he was the first officer, and all Earn these his years honor passed, wings, yes. And eighty years later, and I'm like, wait a minute, I think these two paragraphs are out of order. Confused the heck out of me. And uh, I do like this other bit where he says, um, "I got to find this just right because uh, if cause it's worth it." Here we go. Um, like all other police officers, Vedskin's Ved—that's his name, Ved. Vedskin was toughened to withstand the vacuum of space. Like all police officers. Hmm. Imagine that. I didn't know that was part of the rigorous training through the police academy. So, uh, yeah. If you want more about uh, Hawkman and possibly Darkwing, check out Being Carter Hall blog and be sure to blame Luke Giaconetti for this. <laughs> yeah, this is, oh, man. Giaconetti. Uh, next up, Darwin Jones by Greg Brooks. He first appeared in Strange Adventures number one. Uh, this is, like, at the time, he had not yet returned. He had been gone from DC Comics in a long while. And what? Not exactly. What? Go I ahead. thought so, too, until I did some research. He well, showed up in a Supergirl issue. He was in several DC Challenge issues. And he was in Crisis. Now, that's interesting, because then on the back page, they're lying. Because it says, yep. Darwin Jones has not appeared recently, but you never know. Yep. So they're lying, then. They're lying. Wow. That's, filthy, uh, filthy, dirty liars. Jeez. Come on, Bob Greenberger. What the hell's up with that? <laughs> it's not a bad piece. Uh, this is the only one I can think of of Greg Brooks drew, not just uh, inked. So uh, I like it. I mean, uh, I'm not expecting to find Greg Brooks come back to comics anytime soon. <laughs> I was going to say, it's uh, not bad for a murderer. Yeah. But, uh, well, it's just because you're a murderer doesn't mean you can't draw well. Uh, I, I mean, I like it. I think it's a nice piece. It's got some nice little character bits to it and there you see him talking to one of his chimps and stuff so uh he was he was a member of the department of scientific investigation i love that i have that written down because that's so cool it's so it's, generic too i'm the department of scientific investigation well okay i'm the, I'm the I'm the department of stuff you know like okay right well he first appeared way back in 1950 Right. So really interesting stuff. I mean, he, you know, he was super smart, and they expected him to go off and be a cop just like everyone else in his family, but he went into science. Well, then his family sort of tricked him into joining you know, the, the feds, basically, that, as, as Rob said, Department of Scientific Investigation. So he's still doing police work, but through scientific means. So it's pretty cool. And I think uh, where you know, he's in one of the, the surprints he's investigating, and he finds carved into the wall some initials. And I think that's Greg Brooks getting ready for his time in jail when he carves stuff <laughs> oh. into, the, into the wall. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm just burying that joke, aren't I? So, so oh, question boy. really is, is this an omission or an update? Or, you know, what is this? I'm guessing by the fact that he hadn't made a couple of appearances, that was just kind of like, oh, he surfaced again. Let's give him a listing. I think that's probably fair. Yeah. That's probably fair. Yeah. 
Yeah, so and, and, nice. and Greg Brooks had no connection to the character, as far as I could tell, by the way. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, these are two pages that are separate listings, yet they are pretty pretty connected. Decay yeah. by George Perez, and then Demos and Phobos by George Perez. Decay first appeared in Wonder Woman second series number three, and Demos and Phobos first appeared in Wonder Woman second series number two. So, uh, you know, they're full of George perez goodness. Decay is this nasty-looking, harridan-looking zombie creature who's flying around. The detail is amazing. In the back, oh I mean, gosh. just Perez just went apeshit. Uh, actually, on both of these, Demos and Phobos, too. I mean, these are really crazy. George is George is just such a glutton for punishment. Um, yeah, they're both they're both really really nice listings. Well, it's interesting in that as you read the Decay origin, very purposefully, um, George, because uh, he was the writer as well on those, uh, he mirrored Wonder Woman's origin with Decay, whereas Wonder Woman was formed out of clay. Uh, Phobos. From the other page, actually uh, created a small statuette. Well, he, he had this whole plan. Where anyway, the, the the point is, he created decay in a similar sort of way. He he extracted molten material from a gorgon uh, from her seething heart, and then molded her much the same way that Princess Diana was molded from clay. So there's some parallels there with decay and Wonder Woman, which makes it an interesting sort of pairing. And again, the art is stunning here. These actually do a little more for me than the Cheetah one does. Um, I don't know exactly why. It's just it's Maybe they're less iconic, so I'm just not used to seeing it. I don't know, but they're really cool, intricate designs. And you know, like you said about all the stuff you put in there. I mean, we've seen now for 28 issues previous to this or whatever, George had done a tremendous amount of detail work. Well, this blows away the previous amount of detail work he was doing in other entries, that's for sure. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Decay's bit is pretty much like Medusa. If she touches you, you just start crumbling away. It mentions that she's a superior hand-to-hand combatant, which is kind of a fun detail, but she rarely has to use it because she has such a nasty power. She just touches you, and that's the end of that. And uh, Deimos, you know, interesting about him, he's, he's they don't say he's a Gorgon. Um, or wait, do they say he's a Gorgon? Let me see here. I get, he's a god of terror, and he's got snakes for hair and everything, it, so and, and big and clawed it, feet. Yeah, but they they don't say like he is different powers than Medusa, I guess. So yeah, um, I kind of thought that'd be similar. And then um, you know, anytime I see the name Deimos and it's not the guy from Warlord, I get a little sad. Okay. And it, it, oh, one last thing, by the way, um, you know, these entries again, we talked a lot about Perez. He is Perez is not listed as one of the contributing writers for this issue, hmm. which I find hard to believe given the amount of Wonder Woman characters in here. So hmm. weird. Next up is The Director, which is a nice companion piece to Chiller a couple of pages ago, because this is Henry Ballard. This is the senator that Chiller was going to install as the president of the United States once he killed Ronald Reagan and George Bush and duplicated their identity. So it's it's kind of fun that if you never read this Booster Goldster, you can pretty much get the whole bit with just these two pages and who's who. It's by uh, Jurgens, of course, and Mike DiCarlo again. Now... I, I take a little bit of issue with this simply because this is almost just a redo of the final page of Who's Who, uh, the first volume, issue 26, because that was, it ended with the 1,000 committee, or right. the 1,000, not the 1,000 committee, but the 1,000, and it was a picture of the director. So I mean, it's a, a little bit of a cheat maybe, I guess you could say, just because we, we'd already seen an entry where he was the main character and talked a lot about him, but – Anyway, so um, you know, after the director, I'm interested to see the next character that comes out of this. You know, the middle management. Uh, <laughs> I think they're going to be pretty cool, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. But 
anyway, it's it's a nice piece. It, it is the extant costume. We've talked about this before from Zero Hour, uh, very similar to it. But other than that, yeah, it's it's you know you get Booster Gold in the background, right? So that's something. Yeah. All right. So, and uh, again, Booster visit boosterific.com. Great site. Walter who runs it's a really cool guy. Next up, Doctor Midnight. Doctor Midnight Two, though this is by Vince Argondesi and Arn Star. Uh, this was the replacement for Dr. Midnight is Dr. Beth Chapel. This is where DC was making efforts to sort of like diversify their lineup a little. Um, you know, Wildcat had been replaced by a Spanish woman and Dr. Midnight here is turned into, it was replaced by a black woman. Who else did they do? They did a couple others where they were. Well, they did like, well, I mean, one was... other one, one other JSA um... character. I thought that they. Oh, Our Man. They would, although that wasn't a but, diversity. But it was his son. But, That's where I was going to go. Was yeah. Our Man was just Our Man. But I mean, now, they were all, okay. They were. They all were, those happened about the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this there was that other. There was that other one, like uh, El Gato or whatever, which became Wildcat. I don't remember. Oh, I don't remember that one. Now. Okay. Anyway, this is Doctor Midnight. She first appeared uh, in her uh, civilian identity in an Infinity Inc. number nineteen, and then as Doctor Midnight in number twenty-one. I never took. To her. I love the original Dr. Midnight so much that this one just never did a whole lot for me. The costume is very strange. It's it's monochromatic, uh, just in black and yellow. And the design is kind of cool. She's got like a half moon over her body. But she has these weird sleeve things and these weird things on her boots that just look kind of like a very, uh, f- very form over function kind of thing. So I don't know. I never, I never took too much to this. And she was pretty much forgotten after... You know, they decided, you know what, I think we want to bring the JSA back and, you know, have it be the original Dr. Midnight. So, Well, she's wearing those Cyclops goggles, yeah, which are kind of weird. And then, uh, if I remember, I think she was killed in that big Eclipso thing where uh, all they basically oh, just she? took – Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure she was one of the ones that went to the Eclipso Island and they just killed everybody, including Wildcat, at the same time. Now, here's a, a little bit of a nitpick. Technically, she's not Dr. Midnight number two. Uh, he was Dr. Midnight, and she is Dr. Midnight. Neither one or one or two, because his name was spelled... Um, oh, that's true, N-I-T-E. And yep, hers M-I-D is, hyphen yeah. N-I-T-E, and this one is spelled Midnight like the time. Yeah, so it's technically it's you know it's a little different. Now, uh, I don't know if you mentioned the artist or not. Vince Argandesi and Arn Star. He was, uh, Vince Argan, Argandesi was drawing Infinity Inc. at this point, so he's the perfect person to do it. She has some weird powers, man. Like, um, whereas... Charles McKnighter was blind in, in the in, you know during the day, but he could see at night, and he had goggles that allowed him to see during the day. Apparently, same thing with her, blind during the day, but can see at night. But she can't see during the day. Her goggles don't work, so she cannot see during the day at all. And yet she helps patients. How does that work? <laughs> Which I think explains why Our Man's trying to get away from her on the table and in the, the, the surprint, where he's like, no, no, you don't know what you're doing. You can't see what you're doing. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> um and then if you read her entry, it goes on to talk about how she's not really in action very often, which I think is kind of weird. You know, she said she doesn't want to go out and be the superhero, but she wants to help the team. Yet she continues to wear the spandex. <laughs> like, who wears spandex because they want to? You know, it's, is it she just comfortable? I don't get it. And last thing to mention, she was had a tough upbringing. Her father was a reverend, and her brothers were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> That's a whole lot of pressure to put on a young woman. So um, just saying. So that must have been tough growing up in that household. <laughs> so, again, Tales of the JSA is the place to go. I kind of like the goofy uh, sleeves and the, the goofy boots with the weird, you know, kind of dangly stuff. But I love that she's got that, like, 1980s slash 1990s leg bracer or leg pouch, whatever you call that thing, that sticks to your calf for no apparent reason. Everybody had those things back then. Yep. 
Uh, I blame Thorn. She started it. But again, the 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 goggles just throw me. I don't like them. All right. Uh, next up is Doctor Moon, who for some reason I always thought was a Batman villain, but he actually first appeared in Wonder Woman number two hundred. Uh, I I don't know why. I I mean I guess I think of him as a Batman villain because. He appeared in the Detective Comics run, where he's the one who zaps Catwoman back into being evil. Uh, he said he's a surgeon, a scientist, and a researcher, and the drawing is by Rick Stasi and Dick Giordano. We see him getting clubbed by Katana, and then we see him zapping, uh, I believe it's uh, Halo there, and then we see him... Nope. Hmm? Pl- plastique. Oh, Plastique. And then we see him uh, in the clutches of the Joker who is enjoying Dr. Moon's work. And then in the main drawing, he's got a skull and a scalpel. I'm not really sure what he's going to do to the skull with the scalpel because, you know. I think it's actually a sonic screwdriver. Okay, sure. Looks like it's the way it's drawn. He is an interesting villain in that he gets around. I mean, we mentioned Wonder Woman. We mentioned Batman. Um, He was in Suicide Squad. Uh, in fact, that's what he's doing there. Is he's brainwashing Plastique to forget about the Suicide Squad in Suicide Squad number three, I think it was. So I mean, he really, really got for for a. Usually, you know, back then, you know, you'd have your fiefdoms and you have your villains that stick with you. They don't usually go get around as much. So it's kind of interesting he got around so much. And uh, I love this line here where um, he he has a quote where he says um, why, why he does not use his considerable skills to heal. He replies saying, healing is the body's natural process and therefore dull, commonplace. I am an experimenter, a pioneer, and misunderstood visionary. I prefer to expand the field of science by going beyond the conventions of the hidebound morality. Morality. But then it says, the police of six continents have expressed their willingness to discuss this further with Dr. Moon, who is currently in custody. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of my favorite lines in, in this whole book. They're willing to discuss it with him. So, and, and not too often do you get quotes in Who's Who. No, that's true. That's true. And I like the logo, too. It's funky. So check out the Task Force X podcast by our buddy uh, Brother Head, who uh, talks about the plastique brainwashing. All right. Next up is Dr. Spectro by Pat <laughs> Broderick. All it says, I love the nightlife. I love the boogie. Uh, this guy is, yeah, he is just a living color disco ball. Uh, he first appeared in Captain Adam number five. Uh, he is—he's uh, Doctor Spectro. I don't know what else I need to say about him. He is—he's uh, funky. He is funky, funky, funky monkey. Um, interesting thing. There's a whole clever origin thing with Captain Adam. Like, if you don't know your deal with Captain Adam in post-crisis, you know, basically he there's this whole time travel thing and whatever. But he—he is—he's sort of new to the 1980s. Captain Adam is. He came from the past. And in order to sort of reintroduce him, the government made up this whole fake backstory. They make up a whole fake backstory going, oh, he's been a hero for years. We just didn't tell you. He was a covert agent, which is kind of clever because what they're really doing uh, in the real world, talking in a meta sort of way, was DC Comics was saying all of those Charlton adventures that Captain Adam had were just fictitious history they made up for Captain Adam. So they were sort of incorporating him into the DC universe by saying they were just made up adventures. Clever. And so anyway, so what happens is Dr. Spectro is apparently one of these false Charlton-type characters. And I don't really know if he was in the Charlton series or not. I'd have to defer to Jay Jones, who does the Captain Adam blog, about that. Um, anyway, so, uh, so this guy sort of through a series of circumstances ends up going, you know what? Captain Adam's got this bogus guy named Dr. Spectro in his, his history. I'll just become Dr. Spectro. So that's what he does. He becomes a villain that Captain Adam never fought, but the American public thinks he did. <laughs> clever, clever storyline. Um, 
wretched, wretched costume. I don't think it's a disco ball so much as it's like one of those. Remember in the old days um, before you had jumbotrons that were more digital? They were just a bunch of colored lights. Yes. It looks like it's a, a zoomed in on a jumbotron because he's just got a bunch of colored lights all over his costume. Or he could they, be uh, those dots that you used to buy at movie theaters and stuff. Oh, and yeah. So you just, just take get those on a piece on of paper, yeah. But somehow he's figured out how to make them glow. Yep. So, um, interesting in his powers, it says that he can create hallucinations and stuff with these lights. Each hallucination is different, and a maximum of eight people can be affected at once. That's very much like a role-playing game statistic, because <laughs> it's very specific. Now, talking about the background here, I mean, and Rob talked about how, how funky he is. In the background, you can see his face, a uh, very nice Pat Broderick drawing. You see Captain Adam flying up to face him, and you see he's surrounded by these hallucinations he's creating, and he's got this little sky sled he rides on. And in the bottom, he's creating another hallucination, and you see a crowd of probably eight people uh, running away from the hallucination. So it's, uh, The art's nice. It's very oh, it's pretty. very nice. Yeah, it's jam-packed. And the you green see, works... The green works really well for yeah. some. You see Captain Adam. You see him a close-up him without his goggles on. You see him creating one of these little illusions and people running in tears. It's really very, very dense. Yep. So, And if you want more on Captain Adam and possibly Dr. Spectre, again, check out the Splitting Atoms blog by Jay Jones and uh, the Power of the Atom uh, podcast through DC Bloodlines by our buddy Diablo Frank. Next up, Dr. Ubex. Next, Doll Girl by Murphy Anderson. Uh, yeah, no, Dr. Ubex is another character from the world of Chip. Uh, he first appeared in Green Lantern Corps number 202, and he can open any soda can with ease. Uh, it's drawn by Joe Staten, and uh, this guy, he's not so much a uh, chipmunk as he is, I believe, a beaver. He's a beaver, and he's wearing what looks like uh, Asian you know, kimono kind of clothes or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he's got a big old mace. And uh, I'd say the I'd say Mr. Staten, the joke's gone too far. <laughs> hey, don't blame Joe Staten. He just he, he's a professional artist. He did what he was told to do. So Steve Englehart is that who wrote these? Yeah, that's who's writing Green Lantern at this point. Now it's fair to mention Doctor Ubik's only got half a page, and the other yes, half page did. is Doll Girl. Yes, yes, Doll Girl is the other half of the page, drawn by Murphy Anderson. She Woo-hoo. she first appeared in Feature Comics number twenty-seven, which was uh, I believe Quality, not DC. And then, uh, then became Doll Girl in Doll Man number thirty-seven. So she's—I mean, I think you can figure out what this idea is. She basically was the fiance of Daryl Dane, who became Doll Man. So of course, you know, inevitably, she becomes Doll Girl herself and becomes a superheroine. Um, Not—I don't think she had that many appearances. And it mentions that right now her current whereabouts or activities, if she's still alive, are unknown. So we see a nice close-up of her by Murphy Anderson, and then her flying a little kite, and uh, her her weapon of choice in her shrunken form is a needle. Yes, well, it makes sense. It's just yeah. perfect. It's got right. a handhold and everything. Right. So uh, it's a great drawing. I love me some Murphy Anderson. I, I think this is a really really nice piece. I've, I I my love for Murphy Anderson actually grew out of this podcast. Just going through all the who's who, I've just really come to like his artwork. Now, if you, if you are interested in Doll Man or Doll Girl or just think it's a weird quirk or you really like the Ant-Man movie and you want to see more shrinking people, uh, check out Secret Origins podcast. They just did an episode right. covering Doll Man, which was very good. And one of the things they pointed out I never noticed is that Doll Man and Doll Girl's color scheme is the same as the Ray Palmer Adam. Yeah, red and blue, and, yeah. And Adam came afterwards. And uh, it could be that they, they even kind of said that the Adam was sort of a, uh, a, a less – not less successful, but less interesting version of Dollman. Hmm. Of course, it's Diablo Frank, so he's angry about everything, though. Yeah. 
And uh, he was on there, you know, of course, with that Ryan Daly kid. Yeah, oh man, the, the Frank goes on a rant on that show that goes so long, I swear to God, you can hear Ryan leave, go see Ant-Man and come back, and Frank is still talking. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, next up is The Dome, drawn by Ken Penders and Bob mm-hmm. Smith. This is the headquarters of the Global Guardian. Well, actually, his first appearance is the headquarters of all the superheroes from other countries, which was actually a thing before the Global Guardians announced, but now it's currently doing work as the home of the Global Guardians. Uh, I don't know. Was this necessary? No. Yeah. Well, you know what it probably is? is It even mentions in here, it says, um, it's not yet known how the existence of the new Justice League International will affect the operations of the Dome. Um, Justice League International is about to, about to really start getting involved with Global Guardians characters. A lot of them came into play early on in the Justice League run. So this may be that, you know, J.M. DeMatteis and Keith Giffen gave him a heads up and says, we're going to be doing some stuff with the Global Guardians. Maybe you should do a Global Guardians entry. And they're like, oh, we already did one. Well, we'll just do the Dome. Because it does expand beyond just the Global Guardians. I mean, you do get a lot of the people that would be called the, the Batman what is it called? Batman from other countries, or yeah, or bat, well, of other nations, or something. Yeah, and eventually Batman International nowadays. But um, <laughs> yeah, I know. But you get like Knight and Squire and, and people like that, Gaucho, and so it does sort of touch on a lot of different characters. But it's um, it's okay. I mean, the piece is fine. It looks very, you know, Murphy Anderson, you know, Car- uh, Kurt Swanish to me. I don't know who Ken Penders is. No idea, and he has no connection to this, as far as I can tell, to these characters. But, um, you know, it's a building, and in the Serpent, you got a lot of characters, including Dr. Mist, who, you know, gets more time than he probably deserves. <laughs> yeah, actually, the building didn't first appear until Infinity Nick number 34, but the bat, the Batman various characters first appeared way back in Batman number 62. Woo. So this was clearly a, you know, like retroactively kind of thing. I like that one of the guys was called Wingman. That cracks me up. <laughs> uh, next up, oh, here we go. Siskoid. <laughs> Uh, it's the Duke of Oil. First Duke, appearance. Duke, 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 Duke of Oil, right? Oil, Oil. I, I don't even think I have to tell you this is an Outsiders villain. I uh, first appeared <laughs> in Outsiders number six. It was drawn by Jim Aparo. He's basically a big oil man. He's got a big 10-gallon hat, except he has robot arms, which is awesome. <laughs> this is just totally awesome. I just love it. Mike W. Barr is just grabbing under the goofy bar with both hands. What the hell? Uh, you mentioned that there aren't a lot of quotes in right. Who's Who, but here there's a quote. Yep, he says, there sure is. He says he was talking about when he's fighting the metamorpho, and he says, was he telling the truth when he said, if you don't find a body, he ain't dead. He'll be back, which, of course, means Duke of Oil will return, I'm sure, probably in his own movie at some point. It's part of the old DC, uh, DCU movie universe that they're doing. So <laughs> I love this guy. He's just ridiculous, and that's what I love about him. Do you actually remember the comic, or do you just love the character concept? Oh, I remember the comic. I bought The Outsiders okay. very, very religiously. I bought it right up yeah. to the point where Mike Barr stopped writing it, I think, or whatever. So, yeah, Mike W. Barr just had was just like, who cares? These are silly. What the hell? Duke of Oil. Why not? <laughs> it is <laughs> – I'm laughing with love in my heart. I really am because it's like it is the most ridiculous concept. I remember when it came out, you know, and I just thought it was so funny. And for some reason, this character, more than any other outsized character – outsider's character has stuck in my mind as if like he's a big deal and maybe it's just because there was a house ad or something i don't know but i remember seeing him a lot 
growing up, even though I think he only had one or two appearances. Now, his origin, as you read here, is very, very tragic. It's very sad. He, he, he sort of starts – his body fails him, and so they put his brain inside a robot body, and they say, you know, we're going to be able to grow you a new clone or something like that in 20 years and put your brain back into your body. And Skull, which is one of those super secret organizations – you know, poor man's Hydra, uh, does this to him. And then after a while, he finds out that they totally lied to him. He's not, he doesn't have a, a human brain in there. It's just a robot brain. He's just a robot altogether, which, you know, obviously takes a huge emotional toil on him. It's very sad. It makes me, it breaks my heart, poor guy. Now, it's, um, the, the drawing's lots of fun. I mean, you talked about the foreground. In the background, you've got his, like, head all stretchy and coming out with a robot head, and he's got a uh, looker tied up, as she deserves to be. You can see Katana's sword going through the brain of the, of the outfit uh, of the robot. It's just it's a pretty cool piece. And if you want more of The Outsiders, you can check out, oh, there is no one celebrating The Outsiders. Sorry. You know what? If you can do an Ultraverse podcast, in theory, I should be able to do an Outsiders one. But I'm just not yeah, see how that worked out. We got into like you know seven episodes between a few of us, and that's yeah. it's, it's gone now. You know, and I know, I know, I say this about every third listing, but Duke of Oil would make an awesome superpowers figure because his his power <laughs> action could be those winch arms like Swamp Thing had. That would have been great. Like you pull the arm out, and then you squeeze his legs, and it snaps back into his sleeve. That would be so cool. But he smokes. They can't have that in an action figure. Well, it doesn't have to be that loyal. I mean, it could just be the Duke of Oil part. Come on. It's a smoking robot, so I mean, I yeah. guess that's not so bad. Plus, his, his alter ego is J- Earl J. Dukeston, because, you know, of course it is. <laughs> and he's the CEO of Dukesco Oil. Dukesco. Not, not a very imaginative man for a robot. <laughs> I love it. Uh, next up is Dynamite, or just that's Dynamite. Dynamite. Drawn by Howard Simpson and Malcolm Jones III. He is the teenage sidekick to, uh, what's his name? Uh, TNT. TNT. Yeah, yeah, thank you. First appearance in Star Spangled Comics number seven. Uh, this is a revised listing because he later on ended up hanging out with the young all-stars. Mm-hmm. So that is why he ended up getting uh, a new listing. And I, you know, I wonder, it, I mean, it seems like a lot of the text is just lifted from the original one and they just updated the end of it because it's still just as awkward as hell. Uh, as, as last time we talked about, because it, it talks about how him and his mentor Thomas uh, were, you know, working on an experiment. Because the way it worked was one was his, oh my gosh, it was his phys ed teacher. Wait, uh, he was a chemistry and phys ed teacher, and then of course there's the kid here. So they're working on an experiment at night, and they found out when they touch each other, That's they feel right. stronger. So there's a lot of Really bad stuff going on here. Anyway, uh, so I don't think they changed that text at all. Or if they did, they certainly didn't make it any better. But yes, they updated because he did become a member of the Young All-Stars. And now I haven't read Roy Thomas's All-Star Companions, which honestly I should. But uh, I've kind of always gone on the assumption, or maybe more recently, that Dynamite was put into the Young All-Stars as an analog for Robin. I don't know that to be completely true. But there was no other obvious analog for him to be, unless he's supposed to be Green Arrow, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So other than that, I wasn't sure why he was present in the Young All-Stars, because everyone else is an analog for something. But, uh, well, I guess Tsunami's not. Hmm. Anyway, uh, the the art's nice. Uh, It's, you know, the same artist that does Young All-Stars. I like it. Uh, Now, this character would show up much, much later in Peter David's Young Justice. He would show up as a member of a team called Old Justice, which is funny, which is a bunch of old former sidekicks who come together to try and break up Young Justice. It was cute. Hmm. And again, Tales of the JSA podcast. Check it out. Uh, Next up, two pages for Electric Warrior. 
by Jim Bakey. I believe that's how you say his name. I'm not sure. Uh, this was one of the rare things that uh, concepts was at least existed outside the traditional DC universe, as they say. Uh, this was like a futuristic, you know, uh, post-apocalyptic thing. I actually bought this book at the time. I remember thinking it was pretty interesting. Had a lot of neat concepts. It did not last long, as Shag mentioned. It was canceled as a number 18. And uh, Shag wondered why Electric Warrior got so much play. He's a pretty big figure on the cover. He gets the inside cover, and here he gets two full pages. And that blew my mind. Now, this is very much a kapow moment, too. Yeah, it's a great drawing. It really is. I mean, you turn the page, and it's just like, wow. And two-page spreads, you know, other than um, Bell Reeve, or Bell Rev, uh, were pretty much relegated to Justice League characters, really. You know, you're either a team to get two pages... I guess Bell Rev could be a team. But that's it. Not many other people got two pages. So what was this about? Yeah, he was really – I guess they were hoping for it to be a hit. So we asked uh, the editor, Bob Greenberger, why Electric Warrior got so much space considering he was uh, not long for this world. And he wrote back. He said, we actually didn't know when we began planning the mini, meaning this series. Everyone was hoping the series would find its audience. But by the time it was canceled, I couldn't rejigger the contents and just let it roll. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, because and I think Rob said at the top of the show on the back page where it tells you what's coming up next, it tells you that Electric Warrior is being canceled. <laughs> you know, I mean, Electric Warrior seventeen was on the shelves at the same time as this issue. Eighteen's the end, and by the time this comic was produced, they knew it. And as Bob said, they just they just let it go as it was because they've been planning it out. Still, though, it's kind of surprising that you know, Electric Warrior's sales couldn't have been that strong. It was a non DC character, so I sort of question the the logic of it, like. Why didn't they give two pages instead to a character like Booster Gold, who had an ongoing series? Or Captain Adam, who just got his ongoing series, but they knew they were investing a lot of effort into? Or Blue Beetle, who had an ongoing series? They were sort of the future of the DC you know, superhero universe. Why wouldn't they have got two pages? Um, I guess you could argue Blue Beetle had two pages because there was Blue Beetle 1, Blue Beetle 2, whatever. But Okay, Booster Gold or Captain Adam, why didn't they? You know, but Electric Works, absolutely mm. bizarre. Now, I was reading a lot of stuff on this. Um, Interesting. It's, it reads very much like a 2001 AD or 2000 AD. You know the the British magazine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Judge Dredd and all that. It reads very much like that. And I did a little research online, and a lot of the people that I read uh, who were talking about the comic compared it also to, to 2000 AD, except they said it was without any joy or humor. Whereas 2000 AD would tend to blend humor with a lot of these things or dark humor. They said it was it was sort of like a 2000 AD story, but without joy and humor. So. Interesting. I I can't say I remember. I mean, I read the book at the time. Uh, it's it's got a you know, it's basically about a robot that thinks he's human in this post post apocalyptic world. Uh, it, it I see the British comparison. It actually felt to me like something you would have seen in the Warren sci-fi magazines of the seventies. It had that kind of feel to it, and I you know I remember enjoying it. I actually would be kind of curious if I could find them in like a quarter bin. Uh, Professor Allen, get on that. Uh, I would love to read these again. It would be kind of fun because I read them at the time and then just didn't read them again. And I don't – I'm pretty sure after Electric Warrior was canceled, it was, he was never seen again. Like they've never done anything with it. I wonder if it's creator-owned because it, it was such a unique sort of – At the time, they weren't doing that. Okay. Not, yeah, well, not. then they probably had maybe creator equity in it or something. Maybe like creator equity probably. Yeah. But yeah. But I have never come across an Electric Warrior issue in a back – in um. A cheap bin. I don't even know if I remember seeing it in our back issue bin when I worked. It was a Baxter book. It wasn't a yeah. newsstand thing. It was like a because I think it had a little bit of nudity. It was like aimed at a, like an, a little more of an adult audience. Mm. So I, he's got a cool look. the The story sounds interesting. The artwork is 
really pretty sharp. Um, can I can I give you a major major spoiler, or should I not? In case you do recollect it, go ahead. Okay, a lot of the story here is talking about how it's this other world where there's there's different uh, caste systems. There's like the 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 people who are poor, and then there's the people who are rich, and all these different stuffs going on. You know, cultural clash, obviously that kind of sci-fi trope. But they find out there's these aliens coming. And a lot of the story is, is surrounding these aliens coming, and so he pulls together the various classes to be prepared for this alien invasion. And here's the big spoiler part. Turns out the aliens are just humans. Turns out this whole planet was a scientific experiment of the humans to see what would happen when you put a bunch of diverse classes together in there and in, in, in watch them for like 20 or 30 years. And they had all their memories had been erased and didn't know that they were part of an experiment. That was the, the big shocker at the end. Okay. Uh, Doug Monk. Was, if that's that's like, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. This seems like something he would write. Is it, Interesting. It, yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next up, uh, <laughs> Isak from New Gods number four. I just, come on. By Richard <laughs> Howell and Mike Royer. I just, I don't, I don't have time for this. Uh, <laughs> Sharing, let, me when, let me know when you're done. <laughs> sharing the page with Isaac is fast back from New Gods number five, just to sort of make it even worse. Uh, yeah, these are just two more New Gods characters. I mean, I guess of the two, I go with Fastback over Isaac, as Isaac is basically like a little, not a little kid. It looks like a little kid, but uh, it's just, yeah. I, I, these are these are really like even among the New Gods who you know we're not huge fans of. These are pretty low rank characters. Hey, now, speak for yourself. I'm a fan of New Gods characters. You're not. Uh, I'm not a fan of Forever People, which at first, when I flipped the page and I saw the design for Essek, I caught my breath. I'm like, oh, no! I was thinking the Forever People were back because uh, it is a very unusual-looking character for the, for, the, uh, for the New Gods. Thankfully, it's not a Forever People character. It's actually a sad story. It was sort of like uh, Metron's – or Metron? I, I never say it right. How do you say it? Metron. Everyone got mad at me when I said it a lot wrong last time. Metron. It was like Metron's sort of like scientific protege who then ended up working for Darkseid and becoming horribly disfigured and created all these horrible things for Darkseid. I mean, it's really a sad, sad tale of Isak. And they, I remember reading about Isak last time in uh, the previous Who's Who entry uh, for the new gods, but not for – so I guess it you know, merits an entry here. And Fastback I think is probably the more well-known of, of the characters. And he's super speedster, you know, super town, you know, new genesis, all that business. Uh, the, the most interesting thing about these two is that they're both drawn by Richard Howell and not drawn by Jack Kirby. Right. So I want to say Jack Kirby drew all, if not – or most, if not all, of the New Gods characters in Volume 1. So interesting that these two are not drawn by Jack. I think he had left DC Comics by that point and had moved into animation. Oh, yeah, okay. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, next up is Faye Gunn. Uh, <laughs> is your double space? Is that what that by was? Batman number 409, drawn by Ross Andrew, the great, late great Ross Andrew, and Dick Giordano, also late great. Uh, this is if uh, Mike Gillis loves these characters. Mike Gillis, as he, he is about, he is a sucker for any sort of like old lady ma running a mobster, running like a family of her criminal sons. And this is this is absolutely one of those. Faye Gunn runs a how to be a criminal school, and one of her students was young Jason Todd. So uh, it's a moron. Yeah, dropping his you know his ward off at this school. Great detective work, Bruce. 
yeah, I mean, she looks like Aunt May. Maybe, maybe as like a man cosplaying as Aunt May. It's kind oh. of weird, you know. It's kind of hard. We see her schooling her young students, showing them a bunch of guns. Uh, that might just be Florida. I have no idea. And then we see oh, uh, Batman taking on a bunch of her her sons and stuff. And then there's a close up of her with her cigarette holder and stuff like that. A pretty absurd concept, but no more absurd than anything else in the DC universe. So, eh, perfectly nice listing. I mean, I like Ross Andrews. So, I love that she's wearing like that Victorian marm sort of yeah. like you know, it looks dress. like she's right out of Little Women. Yeah, yeah, but it's like really tight on her, almost as if like they're. He's not sexualizing her, but it's really tight. So, um, <laughs> ridiculous. It's just think like it's funny that with her cigarette, that's just that's your telltale sign that she's evil. You know, right there. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, he dropped off Jason Todd at the school, <laughs> and apparently, according to this, this is what led to the birth of the new Robin, Jason Todd. So somehow, Ro- Jason Todd going to the school led him directly to becoming Robin. So I haven't read these issues, but uh, Ross Andrew did draw at least one, or if not both of them. They are not good. Really? No. This is obvious. This has got to be the post-crisis origin, right? After uh, Jason boosted the tires, I guess. These were the first set of stories after Batman Year One. Okay, and, so this is and, post-crisis. Yeah, and he'd like, all of a sudden he had a new origin for Jason Todd, and he's boosting tires off the Batmobile. Just, people were just like, what the hell am I reading? It was, they were not good. They well, not but good. the previous Jason Todd origin wasn't that great. He was a redheaded kid who was... No, but... He just had yeah. Dick Grayson's origin. I mean, it was... Yeah, this... Yeah, these were not great. So, anyway. Uh, next up is Fire Fist from Blue Beetle number 1, drawn by Jonathan Peterson and Bob Smith. Uh, I don't have, you know, he's, yeah, he's all right. He's a guy that can shoot fire out of his gloves. He's got this big uh, kind of neutrony helmet and one of those like fire retardant suits. So, you know, kind of like your basic blue beetle superhero from this era. I like, I, I have a real soft spot for this character, probably just because of those early blue beetle issues or I just love them. But, um, and to be specific, the fire that comes out of his gloves, they actually come out of his fingertip nozzles. Yes. And I just I just love that. It's just, I think it looks so cool. He's got these little jets that squirt out of his fingertips. They look great. And he's, he's, he's a fire starter. He starts fires. And it's because he got trapped in a fire, and the firemen failed to help him, and so now he's taking out revenge. And it's kind of, a, I mean, if you step back, first thing, it's from Blue Beetle number one. So, I mean, he was the first foe that Blue Beetle fought in the DC universe, besides Crisis. And you sort of wonder, you're like, okay, why do they choose to go for a non-Charlton villain? Why not bring back a character that, you know, might have a little bit of oomph or a little bit of something? Um, I don't have that answer. Uh, but it is a good idea to make Fire Fist the villain in Chicago. Because, you know, Chicago's famous for the Chicago Fire and the Fire Department. And having a villain who's focused on fire, I mean, it's kind of a, a smart villain to have in Chicago. So I kind of dig him. And I, and I like his look. You're right. He does look bulky and kind of weird. It's a weird old helmet. But uh, it's pretty cool. So, and um, no, I couldn't find any connection between John Peterson and uh, Firefist appearing here. So, and uh, for more, and from and, and in the background, you get Blue Beetle kicking him, and you see him with his beaker examining stuff. And uh, it's, it's it's a decent little drawing. But for more yeah. information, you can check out Cord Industry blog with our buddy Tim Wallace. All right. Next up is Flair by Greg LaRoque and Mike DiCarlo. This is a Legion of Superheroes villain. 
Uh, she first appeared in Legion of Superiors number 24. I'm guessing that's the Baxter book? Yes. Okay. Uh, I really like this artwork. I mean, mm-hmm. I really like it. I mean, we've talked about it before that Mike DiCarlo tends to, like, kind of dominate the pen, the whatever pencils he's doing. But here he had some really nice sort of dark shadowy effects, and it's, it's a really very striking. It's probably, like, maybe, I mean, I haven't cataloged them all in my head, but Probably my favorite piece Mike DiCarlo worked on, and the uh, the design is really sharp because on on to her left, she is sort of following, creating this trail of flame. So you've got part of the serpent in the flame, and that's in full color. And then the rest of the serpent on the other side of her is in the regular uh, blues and white. So it is a really really great. And her costume is super cool. It's very sexy. I mean, she's got the boob window, the patented DC boob window. She's got these thigh high boots. She, she must be from Earth too. Yeah. Uh, you know, blood red skin and then fire hair. She, you know, they got to find a way to get her over to fight Firestorm. That would be really cool. But uh, it's a really, really sharp piece. I, I have to say, forgive the pun, but she's hot. She's uh, really sexy. And, and, and you mentioned Firestorm. I'm glad you did because like Firestorm, her flames apparently don't generate heat, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. It's, uh, it's just light energy. So it's not it's, it's similar to Firestorm there, and she's got an interesting origin. I mean, she's very mysterious, and most of her origin was focused around committing heists. And it wasn't until she became part of the new Fatal Five that she started to see they started to see violent tendencies. And that two color serpent that you mentioned, it actually almost works like a three color thing because you've got the blue on the left and the blue on the right. But when they put the yellow wash over the blue on the right. It looks greenish, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. almost like a three-color serpent. It's really clever the way they did that. It looks great. Really so. nice. The only detriment is the logo. The logo is straight oh, up, yeah. straight up lame, and that's too bad because this is a really, really nice piece. I mean, she looks a little bit like um, who? Who was it? Um, Nova, maybe the the Marvel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flaming girl. Yeah, Human Torch's like sort of sidekick. Yeah, yeah. Looks a little bit like Nova, but it's it's a really nice piece. And from if I understand right, because I'm you know I, I I'm not a huge uh, Legion guy from before the the five year later gap, but I, as I understand it, she wasn't one of the uh, Fatal Five that really hung around a lot. As I don't believe Fatal Five tend to kind of go back to those original five members. So anyway, neat looking piece. Really yeah. like. If you want more on the Legion, check out the Legion of Super Bloggers um, blog, and you can also check out the Legion of Substitute Podcasters. Next up is Flash, in this case. I, I think it is. What? It's hard to tell by his face, but supposedly it's the Flash. Okay. Flash 3, which is, of course, Wally West, uh, the DC's first, I believe, third-generation superhero, uh, drawn by Jackson Geis and Larry Malshett, who were drawing the Flash book at the time. Uh, this, this piece, to me, is completely deserving, because this is one of the major changes of the DCU, but the artwork is, like, to me, major failage. I mean, uh, I think yeah. that the anatomy is crazy bad, uh, and it's not the Jack the Butch slash Jackson Geis is not capable of great work. He did sort of Atlantis. He did really nice stuff there, and he's done lots of work, but this anatomy is just insane, and the pose is very strange. It looks like he's sort of skidding to a stop, but sort mm-hmm. of not. It's just, yeah, this was a a real darn shame of a miss considering what this is the main character he and i said he was the first really sort of marquee dc character to be a third generation and uh i've never been that attached to the flash but i've always been sad that uh dc i guess acquiesced to jeff johns's wish to return barry allen back to the flash mantle because i thought you know it's hard to create a third generation character and dc managed to pull it off with flash and then they sort of just undid it all well they did it twice for jeff johns they did it with kyle rayner Another third-generation yep. character, yep. and Wally West. Yeah. And 
on, Wally West is my Flash, and Kyle Rayner is my Green Lantern. So I hold, I harbor a lot of anger and frustration mm-hmm. about those. But you know, it's interesting. You mentioned about uh, Butch guys being competent. I mean, the Serpent looks great. I mean, Wally's face, you know, him as the Kid Flash, the the Kilgree or whatever chasing Wally. It all looks really, really sharp. It's just the foreground piece, which is just god awful terrible. Yeah. And that's what I that's what I meant earlier when you said it's the Flash, and I said I think uh, it just looks so bad. So that, that is a real shame. Now, um, interesting. You know, I was reading this, and it kind of struck me the whole coincidence of Wally's origin, which is you know, of course, Barry got struck by the chemical by lightning on the chemicals and became the Flash, and then with Wally, Barry sets up the exact same chemicals to show Wally this is what happened, and then a lightning bolt comes through and and splashes on Wa- Barry or on Wally. What are the odds? An insane coincidence. And I don't know if that insane coincidence was ever deeply explored until Mark Wade came along. Now, I know there was Mopey or whatever, or the Mope. Mopey, Mopey, Mopey. But he said he was responsible for Barry, not Wally, right? Right. Okay, so it didn't explain Wally's origin, that incredible coincidence of the exact same scenario happening. So it's just interesting that Wally was around. I mean, he's, he's very early in the Silver Age. In fact, it... By the way, I would say if anyone was deserving two pages in this issue, it would be him because Flash is a marquee character and Wally has been around almost as long as the Barry Allen Flash, you know? But anyway, um, so it's just, I don't know, it's, it's just funny that that origin went for 30 years or whatever without anyone really looking at it and going, no, wait a minute, that's too much of a coincidence. So, yeah, anyway. It's, uh, it's funny that you met, yeah, you, you realize after you've said it that, the, yeah, he's been around almost as long as the Flash. He first appeared in Flash number 110. The Flash's first book as a solo character in the Silver Age is right? 105. So, yeah, just yeah. five months later, they're already introducing a kid sidekick. So that says that Wally's been around longer than – I mean, I, I would have to look at a timeline, but he may have been around longer than like Hawkman and the Atom, meaning Katar Hall and Ray Palmer and all those other characters. Yeah. Because this is only crazy. five months after – I mean, not too long then after the showcase number four issue. Yeah. So – um. So I, I think it's funny. I, I love when you read these who's who entries and they really give you a time capsule of what was going on at the time. I mean, the early issues of, of The Flash, they were really trying to still figure out what to do with, with Wally. And it probably wasn't until Bill Mester Loeb's run until they really started getting a handle on it and then definitely with Mark Wade's. But, you know, here he, he's just won the lottery, you know, which is cute. And he was much, much slower at this point. Um, I don't think he could even break the speed of sound at this point. You know, it's just it's just interesting. You know, just that time capsule of what was going on at the time. I miss Wally. Oh. Uh, next up is Flaw and Child. Oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Check out the Flash podcast, which talks about the Flash TV series, and the Speed Force blog for more information on Flash. Okay. Next up, Flaw and Child from Amethyst. Uh, drawn by Ernie Clone, which means I really like it. I have nothing to say about these characters other than... Just for whatever reason, it, when I hear Flaw and Child, every time I saw this page, I just think of the Picasso painting Mother and Child. I have no idea if there's no connection, and uh, that may not even be entertaining. It's just merely a fact. So, have you know, make of that with what you will. Um, this is during the Amethyst is a Lord of Order phase. So, hmm, take that as you will. And uh, they look like cool characters. I'm ready to move on. Okay. Yeah, it's drawn by Ernie Cologne, who I love. So, yes. neat looking drawing, but the characters are just uh, whatever. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> next up is Flying Fox, Among All Stars number one, which was the sort of Batman replacement 
drawn by Howard Simpson and Malcolm Jones the third. Um, not a great drawing. Kind what? Of, yeah, I'm sorry. Just What's wrong I, with it? Eh, just like it's, it's a lot of dead space. I just think it's terribly interesting. I think his he just kind of looks ridiculous. His mask is really silly. I mean, so uh, yeah, I didn't. I can't uh, argue that with yeah, you. Yeah, well, there you go. So uh, yeah, I don't. I, this is another one where I'm like, eh, okay. I, I, I mentioned before, I gave Young All Stars a shot, but uh, I think like about six issues in, I was just like, yeah, I'm bailing. I just couldn't hold on. I'm not, nothing against Roy Thomas, who I'm a huge fan of, and I love All Star Squadron, as I've mentioned a thousand times. I just think DC, the crisis just dealt a body blow to what Roy Thomas was all about at the DC universe. And he tried a little bit to sort of like, you know, get, maintain his turf a little, but uh, I just, he just really couldn't, it just didn't work in my opinion. Well, I'm going to talk about the character first, then I'm going to address some of the comments you just made there. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know at the time, cause I was reading young all stars. Uh, I wasn't reading it as it was coming out. I read it later. But I was still buying them slowly, so it was almost like I was buying it as a new book. So I'd just like I'd buy an issue or two from the back of shoes, then buy a few more, and then a few more. But um, I didn't realize a flying fox was a bat. I did not know that. Someone had to explain that to me. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Um, and there, as you read his entry, you do find out that you know his father was the was an influential person in the tribe. His father was shot. He was grief stricken. So I mean, there's a there's a lot of parallels with Bruce Wayne there, um, but he does have more magical powers. He can fly. He's got he can shoot fire blasts and stuff like that. So he's not a one for one with Batman. No, no, certainly not. But he, there, there's elements there. Um, speaking as to young all stars and stuff like that, I've been doing a lot of thinking on this lately because I I really enjoy the concept of the young all stars. I love seeing these Justice League or super well, you know, the, the superhero analogs: Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. Um, things like that. I enjoyed seeing them in stories together in the 1940s and these new characters. I mean, Iron Monroe is still totally badass, and I still love Fury. I think they're both great characters. And, you know, Neptune Perkins and Tsunami and things like that, I, I love. But the problem was the comic itself wasn't as compelling as it could be. Uh, Roy, as we've talked about before, got really, really focused on bringing in other literature in there. I mean, Frankenstein showed up, like Frankenstein's monster, I should say, from the literary works and other literary characters got brought in. So rather than just being a good old superhero story during World War II where they fight some rats, ratsies, it got pretty deep into other stuff that kind of detracted from that. And then there was something in the comments, uh, and we'll get to, I don't know if, I don't remember if it's highlighted or not for this issue, that got me thinking. They, they said, why did Roy feel so compelled to do the Young All-Stars book? Because these characters are, you know, weak analogs for Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, all that. So they don't really fill the gap, which is what he was trying to do, was fill the gap for those missing heroes. Why not instead didn't he just continue doing All-Star Squadron issues with characters like Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick and Steel and stuff like that? And that's a great question. Why didn't he just stick with All-Star Squadron? Yeah, I mean, it's not like he ever used those main characters that much anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are generally not in All-Star Squadron very much. So, yeah, I don't know why. I never understood that. Maybe the sales were really lagging on All-Star Squadron and they needed a number one. That must I mean, be they... in one of those All-Star companions that you just mentioned. That's, yeah, that information's got to be in there. Yeah. Well, for more on uh, these types of characters with the All-Star Squadron, again, check out Tales of the JSA podcast. So. Right, next up is Francis Kane. Drawn by Joseph Rubenstein, which is this is the only one of his, I think, that he both penciled and inked. Yeah, uh, Yeah, she's from uh, New Teen Titans number seventeen, and it's a really nice drawing. I mean, I don't have much. I never, I wasn't reading New Teen Titans at this point, or didn't read these at least. 
Um, so I don't. This is the no. This is the first run. Oh, was it really? Yeah. Oh, it was that first series? Yeah, you're right. Well, I definitely didn't read those. So, yeah, I don't have a lot of memory of this, but the, I love the uh, portrait of her without her mask. Like, that's mm-hmm. a really nice drawing. Like, it's yeah. really, really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, she's what it's. She's she can mentally generate magnetic energy, uh, and uh, she never bothered to give herself a superhero name. And that's the thing. I, that's one of the things I wrote down was code names. I thought she had one, like Magneta. Or something like that. And it could have been after this point that she got it. but And maybe I'm wrong. But you know, given how far back she goes. All the way back to New Teen Titans 17. And she's got a kind of a, a wild love story. On again, off again with Wally West. It's just interesting. She never became a full Titan as far as I know. Like you, think, you would think at some point. In all their incarnations. Somebody would have put her on the team. And to my knowledge. I don't think she ever did get fully on the team. So uh, The costumes. Okay. You know, I don't remember when the costume showed up because I, I think she was just herself for a long time. I don't think the costume came for a while. But, um, you know, it's, it's a nice piece. It's sort of tragic, though. Her powers caused the death of her um, – who did it kill? Her father and her brother, I think. Basically, she caused the car to go flying off a cliff, and, uh, and she floated out of there. So she had a ba- – if I remember right, she had bouts of just going crazy. And going nuts over a lot of the tragedy that happened in her lives and her powers driving her nuts and stuff like that. And Dr. Polaris played a role in some of this too. So, uh, interesting character. I think Joe Rubenstein didn't get asked to um, draw anymore because he just signs his name too damn big. Uh, That's probably what it is. (laughs) You know that little inset picture of her using her powers? looks kind of Mazzuccelli-like, you know, with so few lines. Hmm. You see what I'm talking about? Uh, I see what you're talking about with the few lines. I don't know if I would say it's Magic Child Lake, but I, I kind of see what you're getting at. Yeah, so, again, uh, if you want more um, on her, a good place to check out would be Speed Force because of her connection with Wally West, the the blog. And then, again, check out Tom Panarese's, uh My Life as a Teen Titan, which is over at Pop Culture Affidavit. Next up is Fury uh, from Secret Origins number 12, um, which is, this is Roy Thomas's again, fill-in for Wonder Woman. The Golden Age Wonder Woman, who retroactively becomes the mother to the current Fury over in Infinity Inc., who is on the other page, drawn by Vince Argandesi and Dennis Jenke. So you've got the two Furies, even though Fury 2 ended up actually first appearing long before Fury 1. Right. It's a crisis, you know, rejiggering yes. and retconning. Yeah. I like the character of Fury. I think she was a good addition. Um, she's, she's a, she's a, this Greek woman who, uh, her father, uh, dies and her brother like helps the Nazis. And so she makes a deal with the Furies of Greek legend to take revenge and she gains these powers. And then every so often she turns into this like monstrous creature too, like a harpy and, and, that's not always. Most of the time, she just uses her normal powers, but she can turn into this harpyish type creature and and, and slaughters people. Um, at least I think she did. I can't remember if she actually killed or not, but I'm pretty sure she did. Anyway, it's, it's a very sad sort of story and, and pretty gory and bloody. But she was a neat character when she was in her hero mode. I mean, she's she's a gorgeous, sexy blonde. She's got a nice tight costume. She's got you know, of course, she's you know based on Earth Two type, even though it's not Earth Two. Uh, she's you know. Golden Age, so she's got lots of cutouts in her, showing lots of skin, because, you know, those Earth 2 girls, what, what is it with them and holes in their costume? But, um, anyways, it, it was a Wonder Woman an- analog, except uh, the difference was, again, the, the, the monstrous part of the dealing with Which the Furies. Which is called the Blood Avenger. Yes, that's, there you go, thank you. I like it, and the drawing's great, she's flying, sort of, horizontally up off the screen, and she's lifting a giant boulder, and she's punching a, 
uh, I don't, is that Dr. Bedlam maybe? I'm not sure. Um, no, it wouldn't be Dr. Bedlam. It was one of the Nazi bad guys. And then you see her as a young girl with the Furies all in shadows. It's by Howard Simpson, the guy who was drawing Young All-Stars at the time. I think it's a nice piece. I like it. All right. Well, like I said, the other page is the second Fury, who first appeared in Wonder Woman number 300, kind of in like a one-off appearance in there, and then Roy Thomas went and found her. And uh, I actually <laughs> – What? She went and found her. It's just kind of funny. Well, I'm just – I mean, you know, he was like – she. I, that that was a sort of a tossed-off appearance because uh, yeah. Wonder Woman meets the Golden Age version who has since retired and has a daughter. So I just meant that, you know, I think Roy Thomas didn't go and create a Wonder Woman. He went and was like, oh, wait, there's already one laying around. Let's just, yeah. let's just use this one. And uh, I always – you know, I liked Infinity Inc. I was a big fan of that book at least for the first 20 or 25 issues or so. So, you know, I kind of have fond memories towards Fury and all these characters, even Northwind. Well, you've got another gorgeous blonde, uh, and she's she, in her costume. She was married to Silver Scarab, I should say. I'm sorry, which was Hawkman's son. Well, that's where it gets a little weird here in a minute. So she, she's gorgeous blonde with the red costume and, like, the yellow piece of armor over her breast, like a Amazon-type concept. And, you know, in the background, you see her carrying a boulder, just like the Fury on the left. You see her attacking some people that – oh, that's got to be Helix. Oh, jeez. Uh, her and Wildcat attacking uh, – looks like the Helix people. And then there's this shot of her with her pet – which is apparently something in line with a kangaroo, which is explained here, which I don't remember in the first edition of Fury's Entry. That must be a new addition to her her life, this kangaroo-like creature that she lives with. I don't. Do you remember that at all? Vaguely. You do? Okay. All right. Um, Fury took one of the biggest hits in the Infinity, Inc. Uh, post-Crisis universe. Because, again, like Rob said, her mom, gone. Huntress took a big hit too, obviously, but Huntress sort of recovered, I think, a little smoother. Fury, you take out Wonder Woman, and then they reinserted this other Fury, but then it gets all screwy, like she was raised by foster parents, the Trevors, you know, awfully convenient, they have the same last name as Steve Trevor, and there's an island called Trevor Island that they go to, and stuff like that, so, um, they're adoptive parents, I should say. Anyway, so, she... She she never really recovered the combination of the post-crisis universe. And then here, what happens here is, as you mentioned, she's married to Hector Hall. And she becomes pregnant with his child. But then he was transformed into an inhuman being. He basically became the Sandman of uh, the, the Jack Kirby Sandman. Right. With root and glob and the red and yellow costume. He became that Sandman and wasn't even really necessarily human anymore. And she basically – he broke off the relationship with her. So he, he abandons her while she's pregnant. Well, this storyline dangles for a few years and then gets picked up after Infinity Inc. closed by Neil Gaiman and his mature readers, Sandman comic. Of all places. I know. How bizarre. But it, it works so well though because Sandman and you know Neil Gaiman made a real effort to bring in all the Sandman mythos of all the previous versions. So he brought in that Sandman, which brought in Fury and the pregnant child – or the, the unborn baby who eventually becomes, as, as Sandman or Morpheus says, this is my son. So Daniel is the son, and that is the son of Morpheus, and who eventually becomes the new Sandman. I mean, just, it just all wove together really nicely and um, complexly, but nicely. Anyway, Fury took a, a big, big hit in post-crisis, so yeah. feel bad for her. Yeah. And uh, then finally, the issue wraps up with uh, Gold Star, uh, which I believe was a really cheap jack version of a VHS player back in the 80s. Um, <laughs> she first appeared as Trixie Collins, great name, in Booster Gold number one, and then as Gold Star in Booster Gold number 13. This is drawn by Dan Jurgens and Arn Starr, who had quite a busy month in Who's Who. Um, 
nice drawing. Very cute, sexy, but sort of, in a more, like you said, in more of a cute way. Um, she kind of has that Booster Goldery sort of costume, except hers is mostly white. Uh, she was, uh, I, I said I don't have a lot of memory of this character. You see a picture of her. She doesn't have a mask, so there's just a close-up, and then there's a, a, nice, a nice reverse angle thing of her in her costume, and then her using her powers, and then her flying off with Booster. And it says, uh, Gold, Goldstar's powers are based on magnetic attraction and repulsion. She can fly, focusing her magnetic powers on a distant object and attract and repel objects and her foes. So... Yeah, well, her her costume couldn't be too similar to Booster's because his comes from the 25th century. So, you know, if they're going to make her a costume in modern day, it would have to be a little bit different. That's where those powers come from. And Trixie was adorable. Trixie, I remember her as the secretary. She was really cute. There was some flirtatious stuff going on there. And then here, she, you know, she's in the superhero outfit, and she's sexy. I mean, we get three hot, sexy women in a row, by the way, which is nice. You know, Fury, Fury, and Goldstar, not bad. But um, the weird thing about this one, though, is by the, this point, Trixie wasn't Gold Star anymore. It had been passed to Booster's sister, Michelle. And it even references it in here, saying how uh, recently Booster's sister, Michelle, went cross-country bringing the suit with her. From time to time, she found the need for Gold Star's power and became a costume heroine. So, sort of like, they, maybe they did the entry and then, like, they just released the issue where Michelle does it, so they just kind of crammed it in the text. I don't really know. But it's very strange that Michelle's the current Gold Star, and yet it's all about Trixie. So, a little weird. But... Um, good character, I enjoyed it, and Goldstar has you know managed to show up time and time again over the years through both Booster Gold's history. So again, check out Boosterific. And that is the end of the issue, and we have the wrap up with the where the characters can be found, and we see covers for New Teen Titans, Batman, Flash, Justice League, Captain Adam, and Wonder Woman. It does mention that Electric Warrior is going out of business, and it <laughs> mentions uh, Faye Gunn, which is very exciting. Not really. And uh, Firefly and Flash, Francis Kane, Gold Star. Nothing too terribly exciting going on here. So, uh, But this is where the DCU was at the moment. Well, it does say Francis Kane walked out on Wally's life in Flash yeah, number well, three. Very right. dramatic. And it does talk about Gold Star and Michelle, the new owner. And, and um, interesting, the Flash cover, I love that Kilgree villain. He looks so cool. I think we get him next issue. But on the Titans cover, it says Mutant, Madness, and The End of Mento. Well, we probably all hoped it was. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that it was. But you do get um, the cover here of uh, Captain Adam actually has Dr. Spectro. So currently, you know, the guy that we talked about today is in the in the headlines, if you will. So look at that. All right, folks. Well, we are going to take a quick break, play a couple podcast promos for some of our friends, and then we come back on the other side. We are going to have your feedback from issue number one of this series. Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. 
part fanboys and part souls, they came to be known as the fan holes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the fan holes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanholes soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. And we're back! So, folks, we're going to jump right in here. Um, I'm going to start off with feedback from Stella. She is our friend who runs the Backworld Oracle podcast. We put a special long-distance dedication out to her last time, asking for us, her assistance in evaluating the Batgirl revised entry, because we knew there were some differences from the original Batgirl and, and the revised Batgirl, and we were asking her for some assistance on what exactly that was, and boy, did she help out in spades. So uh, I'm just going to read bits and pieces of it, because if I read this whole thing, it might be another three hours um and i'm just kidding we appreciate it stella she said it's certainly a revision from her previous who's who entry and i'd like to correct rob on one thing that made me turn my head rob said that babs is a tennis star no that's not right uh that's from betty yeah every everybody took me to task for that yeah which what it was is at the bottom it said this Batgirl's not to be confused with the other Batgirl who was a tennis star. Well, apparently yeah, it well. is to be confused because I made that mistake. So. Well, because you didn't read the entry. Probably. Suck it, anyway. nerds. <laughs> so going through some bullet points, she said, yes, uh, she grew. Originally she was 5'6 and 121 pounds. I think she may have undergone some sort of torture on the rack to grow five inches. Uh, then she says, major changes to her family. Originally, James Gordon was her biological father. and her, She had a deceased mother and her brother Anthony, and, and uh, Stella goes on to sort of explain all this stuff. But she says, Barbara Kessel was one, the one to fully retool Barbara's origin in Secret Origins number 20 in 1987, and then the 1988 Batgirl special. Suddenly, Babs had a tragic backstory, and her mother was killed, and her father later spiraling down into alcoholism, which would later take his life. Then it goes on to say, uh, one of the problems I have with the revised origin is, in fact, Barbara wanted uh, from the get-go to be a sidekick to Batman. Uh, she apparently got a crush on Batman, and this fueled her desire to be a hero. Bah! Bah, I say! Originally, Babs was already training her mind and body, thinking she wanted to do something to help her city. She goes on to say, I don't like the fact that Babs based all of her decision-making on Batman and wanting to emulate him. While she's technically a derivative of Batman, she originally started off on her own, which I think makes her more powerful and special. She was working, working for herself and her city and her father, not for Batman. When you suddenly say she became Batgirl because she was carrying a torch for Batman when she was younger, you create a weaker character and almost a woman, um, almost a woman who's just following a man's lead, and that is not Barbara Gordon. That's a very valid point, by the way. That uh, the, I, I didn't know the, the details of that, but the fact that, yeah, they changed that to where she's chasing after Batman instead of Becoming a hero on her own is, is disappointing. She goes on to say that uh, Babs lost her PhD. She said that also shortly before the crisis, um, this is one of the things where uh, Babs stopped being Batgirl shortly, during the, shortly before the crisis. And the writers had decided to sort of put the character aside for a while. She says, unfortunately, the revised version of Husu focuses on her quote-unquote failure during the crisis and cites that's the reason why she's in semi-retirement. Well, before, before crisis, Babs had lost her congressional seat and was feeling pretty disappointed and feeling like she could no longer help as she could. And her father, Jim Gordon, was pushing her to reevaluate her attitude and start working with the humanities research and development. 
So uh, where it differs is that Jim was forced out of his position as commissioner by some crooked politics in Gotham, and he was taking it pretty badly, which impacted his health. And Babs decided not to go out as Batgirl as much in order to take care of her father, so she, but she would continue to fight crime in other ways. So it's, it's sad to see Babs semi-retired, but at least she had a purpose in pre-crisis, and that was for a good reason. It was disappointing that in post-crisis it seemed like a, her semi-retirement was a cop-out. So, thank you, Stella, for all that information. Very good info. And check, be sure to check out her Background Oracle podcast, folks, uh, where she covers Babs uh, in order in chronological order. She's up to, uh, like, 1988 now, I think, or something like that. Go ahead. We got an email from Tim Wallace from Court Industries and the Legion of Super Bloggers. He does uh, mention that, yes, there was – because I was incredulous that there was a Blue Beetle radio show. Told and, you. And he says, yeah, all right, I didn't argue. I just was surprised. He says, yes, there was a Blue Beetle radio show. If I ever get around to launching my podcast, I plan to include those episodes on my show. That is amazing. I had no idea the Blue Beetle was that big that oh, yeah. he got, his, got a radio show. That's amazing. So, yes, I would love to hear that podcast just so I can hear some episodes. That would be fun. Uh, I mean, I can help you with that in just a little bit, by the way. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, he goes on to talk about – I had mentioned Dan Garrett with one T versus two Ts in the Golden Age and Silver Age. So he, he sort of lays it out here for us. Dan Garrett – Single T was the original Fox feature syndicate character that debuted in Mystery Men number one in 1939. He was a police officer who donned chainmail suit and took vitamin 2X to gain super strength to fight crime. Then Dan Garrett, Double T, was Charlton's original Blue Beetle, debuting in Blue Beetle number one in 1962. This Dan was an archaeologist who discovered a scarab in Egypt that bestowed a variety of superpowers to him. Then there was another feature by AC slash Americomics. Uh, where he talks a little bit about what's going on with that. It was a short story that, honestly, most people don't remember. Then when DC bought the characters from Charlton, as he understands it, they were buying the Charlton-created versions, which was the archaeologist Dan in Tank Court. Fox's police officer Dan is public domain now, and uh, no one ever touched the AC versions, for, to his knowledge. He goes on to touch, because Tim is the Blue Beetle expert, he goes on to touch on, uh, he talks about Carapax and Catalyst, and it says both of them showed up in two, the 2006 Jamie Reyes Blue Beetle series, an issue that features something like Blue Beetle Revenge Squad that also included the Mad Men and Fire Fists. Huh? We heard about just this issue. By the way, if you want to hear more about Blue Beetle, as I mentioned last time, he was, Tim was just featured on the Secret Origins podcast uh, where they covered Blue Beetle. And by the way, I, I don't want to shortcut it, uh, short shrift everyone else. There were lots of people that wrote in with a lot of the same information about Blue Beetle. And we appreciate that. But I just figured I, I wanted to give credit to Tim since he's the Blue Beetle expert guy. Word from Michael Ridge uh, about the Blue Beetle radio program. He says, in the program, Dan Garrett is a science-based hero. And there's no mention of the scarabs. The chainmail is an invention of Dan's druggist friend who's also an amateur inventor. The druggist provides him with a tonic that increases his energy and stamina, a very powerful radio transmitter receiver, and a paint that makes things invisible as well as lightweight non-metallic chain armor. Most amazingly, when Dan can't break loose of those chains that hold him in the death trap, the druggist sends him new strength by radio. Science was strange and wonderful in 1940. <laughs> Heard from our buddy Russell Bragg, who runs the DC Comics Presents show. He, uh, he shares his who's who origin with us, which is he doesn't have one. He says our podcast is his gateway to the comic. 
He says that uh, when it was coming out, this was during his junior senior year in high school, and his high school sweetheart took up most of his time. I'm telling you, Russell, um, that is the downfall of many comic fans. All about the them dames. Them dames is trouble, man, for comic fans. And then he goes on to say, as I've decided to add this series to my collection, I'm thinking hard about the loose leaf version of the follow up series. In your opinion, is the loose leaf version any good? It's a tough question to answer, Russell. Uh, I'll, I'll go first, and then Rob can chime in if you'd like. I would say yes. It's a very good series. It's different than the first volume, Who's Who, in that it's a snapshot of what the DC Universe looks like at that time. So if you care about the DC Universe in post-crisis from, say, you know, the late 80s to the early 90s, it's fantastic. There's some gorgeous artwork in there. There's lots of expansive room for that to go on about the history and the details. However... If you love the history of the DC Universe and you want to see more 1940s characters, obscure stuff, that's not the place to find it. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I was just never as big of a fan for the exact reasons you just mentioned. Uh, it's just, you know, it, it was it was more about the current DCU, and that just did not appeal to me as much. And the I, I can't argue with the style, like why they decided to do it in that format and make it more sort of user friendly. So that totally makes sense, but it just to me it lost a lot of the a lot of the charm focusing on the main characters and sort of losing I don't, I don't know, the format and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, we'll cover it, but uh yeah, it, I and I bought it at the time. It was out when I was at the Cubert school and I bought every issue. But uh yeah, it's just a different animal. It's different, but I, I still love it, though, because I was deeply immersed in the DC Universe at that time. I mean, I talk about finding my joy. That era of DC is my joy. So I love that era, uh, that, that version of Who's Who, Russell. So I still highly endorse it. So. Uh, we heard from uh, Jim Ramolde. How would you say that? Jim Ramolde, I assume. Okay. He does reviews for the batuniverse.net. It says, thank you for your insight of finding your joy. I have gotten into comics of the, of the 80s and 90s, including Who's Who. Uh, I write current reviews for some books for the BatmanUniverse.net, but my heart is um, with the period of crisis and post-crisis. I just want to share. I was able to get the whole original series of Who's Who and the 87 and 88 updates. I did not know about Who's Who until your show. Wow. Whoa. Well, I'm so glad that we introduced you to it, man. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, we got an email from Michael Chaskiro. He says, just started listening, so I'm only on the Inside Trades recommendations, and I need to comment immediately. <laughs> Rob, so happy to hear someone else extol the virtues of the Bart Davis run on Detective. That is also my favorite Batman run ever of all time, for all time, etc., etc. You get the drift, <laughs> I think. It's such an underrated run, and coming out when it did during the Millerization of Batman, it gets lost in the sauce. The Alan Daver hardcover collection is beautiful, and even though I have the issues, I scooped that collection up immediately when it came out a few years ago. Gorgeous work from a master comics illustrator. And like Rob said, the stories from Barr were wonderful, incorporating some classic villains and some old-school stories, but with modern, for that time, twists. Awesome. I get so jazzed just thinking about this run. Very cool. He goes on to say uh, about the Rick Lenardi Batgirl. He says he drew Batgirl in a portion of Secret Origins Volume 2, number 20 as well. Huh. He always loved Rick Lenardi's Batgirl illustrations, he said. He says, I think Lenardi had a very unique style among mainstream artists at DC and Marvel at the time, so his work always stood out to me. I, I agree with you, Michael. I love Rick Lenardi's stuff in the late 80s, early 90s. I just think it looks so cool. It's, uh, it's slightly different, and it just looks great. And then he makes a fool of himself here and says, I love Batman and the Outsiders. So there. <laughs> you're part of that exclusive club of uh, people that are foolish, Michael. Congratulations. And now you're part of the club of people that Shag makes fun of. So look at that. That's not an exclusive club. 
<laughs> it's pretty open, actually. Uh, it's okay. Everyone makes fun of me. So I heard from Jeff Nettleton. Uh, Jeff's new to the show, and Jeff is working on his thesis, I think, because his comments are longer than Frank's. Actually, uh, Jeff is diving into, as Michael Bailey calls it, the Fire and Water family of podcasts, which, by the way, I don't, uh, I'm sorry to break it to you guys, but that's how that's the label, the umbrella that I'm hearing on uh, all of our Friends shows like Secret Orange and stuff like that. Not that they belong to us, but I, I love that. It made me feel warm and fuzzy to think of the shows that have sort of grown out of this one. Anyway, Jeff's been commenting on a lot of the various shows. Like he comments on Secret Origins quite extensively. So glad to have you here, Jeff. Jeff brings a lot of knowledge. So uh, he says, I've recently been working my way through the Who's Who back catalog. He goes on to talk about um, the some of the comments we made. He says, I really enjoy the Legends Dark Side issues of Burns Superman books. Actually, they're probably my favorites, as I thought that the stories were better with Roger Stern writing. So take that, Rob. Okay. All right. We, wow. We didn't like, you didn't like the Legend Superman issues. The, you upset a few people with your comments. Oh, oh well, okay. Yep. Uh, he says, in regards to Joe Staten, I love Staten in the 70s, not as much in the 80s. However, I met the guy at a convention and he did one, and he was as nice as could be. That is true. Joe, Joe and his wife were both very nice. He drew a Captain Marvel sketch for me and signed my copy of E-Man number one. Anyway, his hunches was great in both eras, even though the 70s version was more dynamic and lively. His 80s Green Lantern stuff was really disappointing. I sometimes wonder if his heart was truly in it or if it was just experimenting with his style to keep up with the industry. Love his current work on Dick Tracy. I grew up with Staten at Charlton. I loved his E-Man, his horror stories, and stuff like a $6 million man. He could draw anything and make it fun, even with his cartoony stylings. He just seemed like he was held back in his 80s DC work, apart from Huntress, at characters like Nort. Maybe it was just the scripts he got. Yeah, I never, you know, some features I don't think he was as suited for as others. Uh, I think sci-fi is not necessarily his forte. Green Lantern was all sci-fi, but, you know, he surely hasn't lost any of his skills, because as you said, his stuff on Dick Tracy right now is fantastic. When did he draw Six Million Dollar Man? In the 70s, when Charlton had the license. Were those as awesome as I like to imagine they were? Uh, I'm trying to remember the ones he did. He must have done the comic book, because he didn't do the magazine. I had the magazine, so... Uh, I don't know if I've ever actually ever seen the comic when I think about wow. it. Like in my mind, that's like the coolest comic ever. Well, I'll give it a shot. Read. I may have to find that. Uh, he talks about Aresia. Uh, he said, point of trivia, the name is a tribute to E.E. E. Doc Smith's Lensman books, which featured, featured an advanced race called the Aresians. There was another homage to Edor, who was a tribute to the Edorians, the opponents of the Aresians. The Aresia family legacy is also a tribute to the Kinsen family in the Lensman saga. In those books, the Lensmen are agents of the Galactic Patrol, an intergalactic peacekeeping organization. The Lensmen had a lens that amplified their abilities, like the Green Lanterns, though with different functions. Interesting. He said in regard to Axis America, Roy Thomas was really trying to rechannel his Invaders work, but it just didn't work as well. It's not, uh, it's not helped by the characters looking too contemporary. Uh, that's something, by the way, I've said a lot about different All-Star comics ones, was, uh, All-Star Squadron stuff. is like a lot of the characters are, look great, but they look too modern, not 1940s. Anyway, he's, he's backing that statement up. He says the characters look too contemporary. Frank Robbins, who did the Invaders, make it, made it look like the 40s. Young All-Stars didn't. That's true. Then he goes on to say here uh, where I missed... Uh, the bit about Tom Mandrake drawing Shazam. He said, side note, shag. Google is not research. No wonder you didn't know Tom Mandrake drew Shazam a new beginning. Stay after class. <laughs> well, Jeff, unfortunately, you have touched on one of my sore points. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Um, I just want to put it out there, just uh, in case someone's n- new, perhaps, and doesn't know. 
we actually do, and I know you're just kidding. It was just a, a joke off the side, but it, it hit my button. Anyway, I just want to let you guys know, we do a tremendous amount of research on the front end of this show. Like, I clocked it one time. I spent five hours preparing, on average, for these shows. Between the research and the reading and the going over it and a tremendous amount of stuff. And as far as Googling, I don't actually just Google. I use, my primary three sources are Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the Comic Book Database, which is Comic Book DB, and Comics.org, which is the Grand Comics Database, which are three of the most amazing comic book databases on the internet so if i miss something that's down to me not to not, not down to google you know in that case of tom mandrake i just missed it somehow so anyway i just did want to say we do do a lot of effort uh on the front end and i i'm very proud of the show and i think it shows and i think a, a lot of the comments back and forth kind of play that out so uh anyway so on the night that shag did five hours of research i did none uh he says <laughs> and in the early uh, episodes you can tell because in the early episodes rob didn't even read the damn comic before thanks. we recorded Early episodes, uh, and he uh, Jeff Jeff also says, "P.S. Rob, I enjoyed the episode with the memories of the Kubert School." Uh, he's talking about the Fire and Water podcast, not Who's Who. He says, "When I was leaving the Navy, spring 1992, I applied there and got accepted. Unfortunately, I couldn't swing the tuition and didn't have the GI Bill. The Navy had already paid for my bachelor's degree. I couldn't qualify for financial aid due to my naval officer's salary." Uh, I didn't get to go, but the memory of my interview with Mike Chen still lasts. I sat there as he looked through my portfolio, staring at a cubed painting of Tarzan fighting a crocodile, <laughs> thinking myself looked like complete shit. Yeah, well, that tends to happen when you go to the cubed school. Um, that coupled with the long drive from South Carolina, where I was stationed, still stand out. On the plus side, on the day of my interview, I picked up the first two volumes of NBM's publication of Joe Halderman and Marvano's adaptation of The Forever War, Halderman's sci-fi classic, based on his experiences in Vietnam. I found them at a Walden Books at the local mall. Uh, that's probably the Rockaway Mall, if I'm familiar. He says, uh, they made for great reading. as in Volume 3, which followed. So, Rob, I just missed potentially running into you there. Well, at least when I had my interview. <laughs> I was the one with my head down. Aww. So, what is this NBM's uh, in Marvano thing? What is that? Because I've read Forever War. It's a great book. Wow. I would love to read an adaptation of that. I don't I have no idea who MBN is. Uh, that was just a, a company that produced like these sort of graphic novel albums adaptations yeah. aimed at adults. I don't think I knew there was a comic book adaptation of it. So I may have to find that. Yeah. Interesting. We heard from our buddy Luke Dobb from Dobb Creative. He says, I really like this episode, particularly because it connected with a special batch of comics to a specific date. A while back, you read a personal story I wrote about camping with my friend Andrew. On the trip, I discovered a spinner rack in the campground general store and spent all my food money on comics. I love these, that. I know, I do too. It says these comics were contemporaries of this update to Who's Who. And he realized as we were reading the issue, he goes on to say basically that this issue was right around the time as all those comics he bought. So it was right in there. And I'm just going to mention a couple of them. He gave us a list of them, but Green Lantern Corps number 217 and Codename Spitfire number 13, which was the final issue. Now, Luke is a longtime listener to the show. He knows which hot buttons to hit with me. So uh, these two th statements stood out to me. Spitfire was perhaps the most boring to me, except there was a naked lady in it, albeit strategically uh, covered by machinery. And it says Green Lantern Corps was the first comic I read with a swear word in it. Someone said the D word, and I was like, oh, I hope my mom doesn't see this. <laughs> I love that story. It cracks me up. I uh, heard from Wolfgang Hartz. He says, uh, I noticed that whenever there's a reference to Superman or Wonder Woman, they still say, see Superman 2 or Wonder Woman 2, even though there's only supposed to be one of each. You're absolutely right, Wolf Wolfgang. Um, I think I called him um, – did I say his name wrong a minute ago? It's Wolfgang Hartz. I think I said Wolfram Hart. Anyway, uh, sorry about that, Wolfgang. Um, yes, they're still saying, see Superman 2 and see Superman Wonder Woman 2. I, eventually, I'm sure they'll get this out of their system. But, yeah, it's, it's, they, they got a problem. The editor, they need Brenda Pope. 
Set simple. Zoom Yukinori uh, from uh, the comic book resources, he does artwork for the line it is drawn, and he's the one who's done our amazing custom who's who pieces over the years now. He says, Axis America, uh, I was talking about Flatermouse possibly being connection to Kid Carnival. He says, Shag, you may be onto something with Flatermouse and uh, Kid Carnival. While I do not believe it was explicitly stated they're both the same character, it was stated that Carnival had died and apparently so bad that he was kicked out of hell. Flatermouse uh, was actually crushed to death by a, by a knockdown plane in Young All Stars number six. Whether he was killed by Fury, who was in her Blood Avenger form, knocked down the said plane, or by Sandy the Golden Boy, who actually placed the unconscious Flatermouse beneath the plane, thinking he'd be safe from a nearby fire, is up for debate. While I would not think Roy Thomas's Flatermouse as a character so vile even hell wouldn't want him, characterization, characterizations have been known to change in many of the lower strain DC characters during the the noughties, which is zero the the two thousands. Uh, a question for Bill, Hang- Bill Winning- Willingham for sure. Uh, though connecting the two characters would sound like a typical Jeff Jeff Con, which is uh, short for Jeff John's recon. Well, taking <laughs> Zoom's advice, <laughs> you found that funny? <laughs> I never heard that before. Jeff Con, yeah. Uh, taking his advice, I did reach out to Bill Willingham and I asked him, and I said, you know, was there a connection between Young All Stars, Flader Mouse, and York Carnival? And he said, uh, Bill responded, saying, I don't believe so, except they both at one point in their lives were members of a Nazi-themed supervillain team. Kid Carnival was the first member of the villain team Pinnacle in Shadow Pack, but proved too disturbing and evil for them. Remember, he was the kid who was kicked out of hell because he was he scared the workforce. Well, um, and that, that is why I made the connection, because Flatermouse died, and then Carnival had died and gone to hell. I thought it was connection. But clearly, I'm just doing retcons in my head, so that's okay. Then uh, Zoom went on to say, Batman regarding Leslie Tompkins. She first appeared in the 1970s classic, There's No Hope in Crime Alley. And while it was revealed in that story that she had comforted Bruce the night of his parents were murdered, she wasn't originally Bruce's guardian until later uh, stories, which would be in the 1980s. Then he goes on to say, Shag, the portrayal here in the Batman Serpent is Jason Todd. I had said it was Tim Drake. And, dude, I totally said the wrong thing. It's one of those things where you, you're thinking one thing and you say another. I was totally thinking Jason Todd because they have this very specific way they draw the Robin's hairs. If you look, at, especially in the 80s and 90s, uh, Tim Drake's hair looks one way. It's kind of spiky. Jason Todd's bangs come down in these two swoops, one on each side, and Dick Grayson's hair is more just combed to the side. They're very specific about the way they draw the, the, the Robin hair so you can sort of tell them apart. And I was thinking Jason Todd. I just said Tim Drake. So, der. So, and then uh, he goes on to mention uh, one, another one of his who's who entries he drew for the line it is drawn. He did a Kid Lantern entry from a few years ago, which is pretty awesome. And by the way, a few people, uh, by few, I mean a bunch of people jumped in also to point out my mistake about the uh, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, uh, Robin, including our buddy Tom Panarese from Taking Flight and Pop Culture Affidavit and, and In Country. So thank you, everybody. Sorry, my fault. I should have, I was looking at the bangs and just said the wrong thing. It's who's who people are a tough crowd. <laughs> These are the kind of people that would have wrote in in those letters pages, you know? <laughs> no, actually, the, you guys are awesome. I love the feedback we get from you guys because it, it's great conversation about the characters. We all have a passion for it. We get a lot of corrections, and it just it adds. I was talking to somebody, Michael Bailey, actually, recently about the Who's Who podcast and how the feedback section actually is just as important as the show because you learn so much about the previous issue that me and Rob may not have known or some minutiae that one person knew. And it's, it, it's a great collective, you know, we're sort of a, we're sort of like a Borg for the who's who. Uh, Siskoid from Siskoid's blog of geekery, uh, Legion of super bloggers, uh, the hero points podcast, and apparently has a, a regular chair over at secret origins. He wrote in with a bunch of comments. He mentioned Atmos, who was the Legion character. He said he would actually become a Legionnaire during the five year gap. So he's having to do a who's who entry for him sometimes uh, this summer in the Legion of super bloggers. 
Uh, he had to comment on Bad Samaritan. Of course he did. He says, snooze. <laughs> Could this injury be any vaguer? One of the things the original volume of who did well was ignore Mike Barr's lame outsider villains. The updates seem to assume these guys would eventually be big. None of them ever were. Bring on the Duke of Oil or don't. You know, I meant to mention that earlier. The Duke of Oil had a tremendous amount of text for an outsider's character. <laughs> Most outsider's characters just have a, blip, a little blip. Yeah. He had a big old chunk of text. And then he says, still, the Outsiders attack Gorbachev in the Serpent. <laughs> uh, and regarding to Bell Rev slash Bell Reeve, we were wondering what the correct pronunciation is. Well, Siskoid is uh, French-Canadian, so he's our source. He says, Bell Rev, it means beautiful dream in Creole French. It's meant to be Rev, not Reeve. But since that's how Americans seem to want to pronounce it, the New 52 version actually spells it Reeve, which I hate with a passion. I didn't know that. I had no idea they changed the spelling. I think it's an important entry because the Suicide Squad ground crew doesn't get another entry somewhere, and they were distinctive and important to the stories. Hmm. That's a good point. So it is deserving of two pages. So all you that said it doesn't, suck it. Uh, Black Mace, he says, is it me or are LaRock and Tangel channeling Frank Miller here, especially in the face? And, you know, in hindsight, I can see that. Black Mace does sort of channel that Frank Miller, you know, mid-1980s look. And then he goes on to say, Captain Marvel, meaning Shazam, uh, you taped the show before Secret Origins podcast episode 3 came out, but it did today. Thought I'd mention it. So there's another plug for that Ryan Daly kid. Uh, And he goes, uh, lastly, he says, you know why I think Roy Thomas included Our Man in the quality hero story? And this is a reference where I said I didn't understand why Our Man got included in the Freedom Fighters stories in All-Star Squadron. I, I get why there was Freedom Fighters stories. I just didn't know why they put Iron Man on the team. And he says, because the first ever mass superhero in comics was The Clock, who, though his first uh, couple of appearances were not under Quality's banner, was published by the Quality thereafter. So I guess Iron Man is, is in there as a surrogate for The Clock. Interesting. Heard from our buddy Kyle Benning from King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, also from the Legion of Super Bloggers, and a recent guest on our Fire and Water podcast with talking about Dr. Fate. He, and uh, he came out and said how much he loves the cover of issue number one. He says, I love the cover. One of the, uh, over the years, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle have become best friends and almost synonymous with each other. The blue and the gold. At this point, they would have just been briefly introduced to each other and had very limited interaction between the two of them in the Justice League. But given what the next 15 years or so held for them as friends and teammates, it's very fitting that they're so close to each other on the cover. At least for me, it's always made this cover iconic and memorable seeing them both flying slash swinging across the cover next to each other. <laughs> nice observation. Uh, he says, uh, Rob, we have been all, we've all been wishing for Bizarro in a Superman movie, but we kind of got Bizarro in Dark Superman, Superman 3, and Nuclear Man, no shag, not that Nuclear Man. <laughs> While Superman 4 had some real rough patches, pretty much any time Lex Luthor's D-bag nephew showed up, I actually really like Nuclear Man as a villain. He's pretty menacing and total match with Superman on a power level and somewhat visually appealing, minus his nuclear fingernails. At least visually appealing enough for Rob Liefeld to totally steal his costume design and make money off renaming him Supreme. People, oh, people, snap. people, do not be fooled by Ryan's, uh, but Ryan, by, uh, by, uh, I'm blanking. Kyle. Kyle. His I'm name sorry. is just like three paragraphs yeah, above. It's very late. Um, do not be fooled by Kyle's suggestion uh, to the plot of Superman 4 and fool, fool you into thinking it might be worth watching. It isn't. <laughs> okay? It isn't. So, don't bother. Um, and then Kyle typed a sentence that I don't think's ever been typed in human history. He says, the Captain Adam as Monarch story arc in Countdown was definitely one of the more enjoyable threads of that series. Um Enjoyable and Countdown don't belong in a sentence together. Now, normally, I'm 100% on board with everything Kyle says. This time, 
buddy, I'm sorry. I can't get there with you on, on most of this. Terribly sorry. Oh, well, the cover. Okay, I agree with you about the cover. But the rest of it, no, we're not, we're not, we're not seeing eye to eye this time. We'll catch up next time, buddy. Then we heard from Ange, uh, who does the Comic Box Commentary, which is a Supergirl blog, and he's a member of the Legion of Super Bloggers. He says, Young All-Stars, I also bought the first year, and I think most of that was based on loving the covers of the first half a year or so. Those Brian Murray, Murray covers are great. Boy, the art on that book was something special. I also really like the Golden Age Fury on her um, Golden Age Fury on her team. Her origin is based on tragedy, which adds a nice dark element to the team. Yeah, I totally agree. Fury was a great addition to that team, Ange. On Arisia, he says, I also find, found the I'll age myself so we can do it storyline of Arisia super icky. Brr. But then based on a comment Shag said, I Googled imaged Arisia cosplay. Because I did make a comment about that. Anyway, I Googled imaged Arisia cosplay while at work. Note to self, never Google image Arisia cosplay while at work. <laughs> There's a lot of talk about Bizarro, by the way, after last episode. Because there's a lot of debate about when Bizarro's first appearance actually was. Well, Zoom Yukonori, among other people, came in and said, Bizarro's first appeared in Superboy number 68, but he was destroyed at the end of the story. Luther duplicated the circumstances that created Bizarro Superboy to create Bizarro Superman in Action Comics Volume 1, number 254. Since this was a different character, this was considered the first appearance as far as the Bizarro Superman was concerned. Hmm. Who knew his origin could be so confusing? Uh, we got a message from Ange. He says, uh, at Firestorm Fan, and this was on Twitter, and at Aquaman Ryan, everyone gets credits talking about Sir Print Talk except me, the first guy to send you info. And he sent us the letters page column uh, from a DC Comics Presents, which talks about production Bob Manager and Bob Rosakis and the Sir Print. So I, I have to apologize. I don't remember uh, Ange sending this to us. I'm sure he did. I just don't have any memory of it. So sorry about that, Ange. Oh, I absolutely remember getting this. Oh, do you? Okay. Oh, yeah, because we, you kept saying you dined out on this for a long time talking no, about No, no, I remember this. I don't remember it being like the first time we got it, though. I yeah. don't, don't remember that. That was the first validation. What I what I didn't remember was that it came from Ange. That, okay. I remember the I remember the piece. I remember Bob Rosakis. I remember the tour and all that. I just didn't remember it was from Ange. And now I will probably forget it was from Ange. Watch. What are we talking about? Who? I don't know. All right. Uh, heard from Anthony Durso, who goes by the Toy Room, who does the amazing custom Mego boxes, uh, Amigo boxes. Love them. You can find him at www.the-toyroom.com. Uh, anyway, he says, uh, Young All Star slash All Star Squadron. Like, oh, I'm reading Rob's bit. I'm sorry, Rob. After you, sir. <laughs> like Rob, it's I, late, as you said. I had every issue of All Star Squadron, but Young All Stars couldn't hold my interest for a full year. By this time, this version of Uzu Update is done. You'll be tired of anything related to Young All-Stars and Infinity, Inc. <laughs> they will make you long for the days of the new gods, Omega Men, and Atari Force. <laughs> Roy Thomas had his work cut out for him at DC by this point. Still working on popular titles, but having his hands tied by the new post-crisis editorial policies. Most of these retcons of the Golden Age Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and all characters just didn't work. Yeah. Well, we talked about that earlier. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, Brimstone. Speaking of wrestling, how have we not had a Brimstone, Chemo, and Validus Battle Royale yet? <laughs> That'd be perfect. That'd be awesome. I don't know how that hasn't happened. Then he says, Caress. Part of the attempt to modernize the Fatal Five. Fail. You can tell that DC was trying to push Legion characters since the book was one of their bestsellers at the time. Black Mace and Caress didn't deserve their individual listings. After all, earlier Legion of Superheroes foes like Evil Low and Radiation Roy... <laughs> Great night. I love that character. Great, great name, get, I mean. I know. They didn't get their entry, own entries. Cosmic, Cosmic King only got half a page. They should have saved the space and waited for who's who in the Legion. 
Then we heard from Little Russell Burbage from Tacron Galtos. Uh, he's with the Legion of Superbloggers and does his own blog, Friends of Justice, and also does his own uh, Justice League comics over there. You should check those out. He says, I put on my angry pants and I'm ready to rock. Here goes. This issue sucked. The cover was the best part of the issue by far. Besides the Batman entry, I include myself as a fan of the Bar Davis run and the Batgirl art. The rest of the issue was just blah, B as in blah. Oh, Russell. Little Russell Burbage. Such an angry, angry young man. Uh, we heard from our buddy Earth 2 Chris from the Supermates podcast uh, and also the Power Records podcast and also has shown up on the Secret Origins podcast quite a few times. He says, I did not like Staten's work much in this period. He went too far into cartoony and everything just seemed rushed. Just saying. Uh, Chris, I totally agree with you. Then he says, Batgirl, Stella took care of this one, but I will point out that Leonardi seemed to be channeling Carmen Infantino more than usual. He followed him on the Spider-Woman book at Marvel. Probably because Infantino co-designed, co-created slash designed Batgirl. Just look at that close-up shot of Babs, that's an Infantino face. Huh, that's a really interesting observation, Chris. Regarding Batman, he puts in all caps, yes. This is gorgeous, and Rob is right. This encapsulates all that is Batman. I think Robin could either be Dick or Jason, but it's probably Jason, as since Barr and Davis were mostly doing the pre-crisis Jason, despite the horrible retcons Max Allen Collins was concocting in Batman, I'm more agreeable to him here. Put me down as another huge fan of the truncated Barr Davis run. The artwork is, of course, gorgeous. Equal parts Adam's realism with spraying cartooniness and design. And Barr was one of the first writers to to be able to justify the Batman who was Robin's old chum and a fierce warrior to criminals. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Then he goes on. We talked about Leslie Tompkins a little bit earlier. He gives us more detail on it. Leslie Tompkins, helping to raise the orphan Bruce, was one of Barr's contributions to the post-crisis Batman that stuck. He introduced the notion in Detective Comics number 574, Davis's penultimate issue. Pre-crisis, Leslie was simply a kindly lady who comforted Bruce the night his parents were killed. And when Batman visited her on the same night every year, per There is No Hope in Crime Alley from Detective Comics 457, she had no idea he was the same person she helped all those years before. The animated series further strengthened the post-crisis relationship, making her a friend and colleague of Dr. Thomas Wayne, as seen in the adaptation of Detective Comics 457, Appointment in Crime Alley, which was adapted by Jerry Conway. Whew! And then Joe X came in to say he was certainly better than Batman number 208, where it was revealed that Bruce was mostly raised by his uncle Philip's housekeeper, who was also the mother of Joe Chill. <laughs> Since we're talking about Chris Franklin, I just want to bring up over on Secret I, Secret Origins, man. I, I wish I got paid a nickel every time we mentioned that podcast. Anyway, Secret Origins podcast number six, which was about the Golden Age of Batman. I personally got taken to task by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin about my phrase I use, which is everyone goes through a Batman phase. And uh, I still stand by that, but there's a, they, they really took me to task on that. And over in the comments section on the Secret Origins podcast number six, I stood up for myself, explained myself, and uh, I, I think now I get a little more cred for my position on everyone has a Batman phase. So, go check it out. Okay. Secret Origins podcast.wordpress.something something or other. Use the Google. Google will get you there. <laughs> uh, Michael Bailey from Tales of the JSA from Crisis to Crisis. He was in a long box. Uh, and several other shows, uh, he says, I say with no shame, with no hyperbole, that this issue of Who's Who was very emotional for me. I realized this fact as I was listening to the episode. See, I started seriously buying comics in the spring of 87 as the term tardy to the party is apparently my mantra. Despite loving superheroes my entire life and occasionally dipping my toe into the comic book world, it was John Byrne Superman that finally sucked me in. 
The very same month I bought the Superman books that would eventually lead to the borderline personality disorder I have today, Who's Who Update number 87 number 1 came out. There I was at 11 years old, curious about the larger DCU, and the kind folks at the company decided to put this tome out just for me. Okay, it wasn't just for me, but it felt that way. No, Mike, it actually was. We checked with Bob Greenberg. It was just for you. So congratulations. I heard from Van Z. Because uh, Mike said he was just he wanted to dig out Booster Gold and Blue Beetle and Firestorm and Suicide Squad and all the books from 1987 after hearing the podcast. Van Z said, I feel the same way. I was going to watch the NBA Finals tonight, but I want to listen to the new Who's Who episode. Sorry, LeBron, but I got to keep my priorities straight. From David Ace Gutierrez, he says, yeah, I guess we just ordered some Alan Davis Batman. Thanks, Rob Kelly and Shag. You guys are smack dealers. <laughs> we have heard David Gutierrez's wallet a few times, so I'm proud to say. Uh, Michael Bailey continues. Uh, he says, who's who fans prefer to be called Whovians? We know that another group claims that name, and we don't care. Uh, Mike, I'm here to tell you uh, that's a problem. Sorry. Whovians is reserved for Doctor Who fans and has been for about 40 years. So you got to find a different one. Count Drunkula chimes in and says, I think we should be called Whoers, but you got to say that fast. And then Hector Negrete comes in and says, maybe who's Whovians? So, I don't know. I put it to you folks at home. Uh, what should fans of who's who be called? I, I don't know. I, I say who who's whoers, but uh, we'll just have to see what, what comes out of this. Then Michael Bailey live tweeted the episode using the hashtag FWPodcast. Just a few of the bites uh, he put out there. Amazing Grace didn't sort of seduce Superman. She straight up seduced him. <laughs> uh, Atmos should be yelling, I'm bored! Hashtag Nexus. That's a great bit, Mike. I didn't even catch that until I was reading this for prep. Yes, the old Nexus comic, so that's a great uh, thing. They both have mohawks is what that is. But anyway, love Nexus. He goes, Axis America is one of my favorite Nazi super teams, which feels weird to say. Uh, Young All-Stars for the win. Iron Monroe for the win. Love that group. So I'm glad to see Young All-Stars getting loved because, I, again, I – I do have a lot of passion for the group, but I, I do see the concerns. So anyway, he goes on and he says, anyway, I want to throw a link out there for another Green Lantern show that is pod faded, but covered some of the characters talked about during the episode. It was called Green Lantern's Light and was hosted by Michael Bradley, J. David Weeder, and some guy named Jeffrey Taylor. Then he took a picture of one of his long boxes. Peeking through the long box window is Supergirl. Uh, this is classic uh, Bronze Age Supergirl with the plunging neckline. You know, with the, the cleavage plunging neckline. So all you can see is a little bit of her face and basically her plunging neckline and cleavage. And it says, this gives new meaning to the term boob window. Because you're just looking through the handle of the long box, which is hysterical. Uh, he also writes, uh, Shag, Rob Kelly, looks like you guys have one more who's who to pencil into the schedule. And you never know what will show up in an eBay sketch. And he sent a picture from uh, in, in a book of Sweet Valley High <laughs> yep. entitled Who's Who, number 62. Oddly enough. So, uh, yeah, maybe we'll cover that after Who's Who in the Legion. And Who's Who Among Executive Professionals in 2015. Yeah. <laughs> and then Rob came back and said, oddly enough, there's six Omega Men listings in there. So, yep. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> it, it was clever. Someone must have wrote that for you. Uh, and then, because uh, it keeps going, Bailey says, and there's 15 New Gods entries, and David Gutierrez says, the rest, uh, the rest is all Northwinds of Infinite Earths. <laughs> anyway, we heard from Aaron Head Moss. Uh, this is just a shout out to Aaron Head. He was nice enough to leave a comment. Um, nothing really of value. It pretty much was just a waste to even bother typing those words, Aaron. But no, I'm just, I'm teasing. He said some nice things about the pod, the podcast. Uh, so it was very, thank you, Aaron. We appreciate that. And um, he does the Head Speaks podcast and the Task Force X podcast. And I appeared recently on episode 12 of the Head of the Task Force X podcast talking about Firestorm. So check that out. 
Heard from our buddy Joe X. He said uh, he's got lots of little comments here. He says the Gladiator novel that I mentioned by Philip Wiley is considered one of the primary influences on Siegel and Schuster when they created Superman. See, I didn't know that was out. I always thought that was just theorized. So I'm glad to hear that that was actually validated. Anyway, uh, he says, uh, you know what would have been a great all-star comics fill-in or all-star squadron fill-in? A story featuring all the comedy sidekicks like Percival Pop, the super cop, the three dimwits from Flash, and Woozy Winks, among others. That would have been a riot. That's a great idea. Now, I don't know if Roy Thomas is is built for writing comedy, but uh, and that's not a knock. I just don't know. But that would have been a hoot to see that. I mean, you, you know a little more about these Golden Age characters than I do, probably. I mean, in the funny characters, it, it wouldn't, that would have been a blast. Yeah, that would have been funny. Yeah, I, I think I like that idea a lot. He goes on to say, I think John Byrne created Bloodsport as a reaction to media reports that he was going to Rambo-eyes Superman. Interesting. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about Blue Beetle. He goes, the non-Charlton Blue Beetle rights were kind of sketchy at the time. I know he wrote Thomas wanted to use the Golden Age Blue Beetle in Young All-Stars, but it was decided it wasn't worth the hassle. Uh, and he goes on to say, uh, we could use some links to all these podcasts and blogs I'm mentioning. Well, uh, Joe, sorry, I... It would get very cumbersome to do that. So right now, the best thing to do is just Google the ones I mentioned. They'll come up pretty quickly. So, uh, And then he says, just thought of this. Since Firehawk is in the new Super Team Family post, which, by the way, um, Super Team Family is run by uh, Ross Parasol. It's that fun thing where they put a new cover up every day, and it's two characters that don't belong in the same universe matched up together. There was a recent one with Firehawk and Ben Riley, Spider-Man, since she's Lorraine Riley, which was actually suggested by Matt Chad, Nathan, uh, I'm blanking on a name. Nate Winchester, I think is his name. Anyway, um, he says, since Firehawk was recently seen there, was there ever any talk of her being related to the Golden Age hero, uh, Rod Riley, which was Firebrand? Hmm. Not to my knowledge. But, you know, having a connection between Danielle Riley, a red-haired young woman, and Firehawk, who is uh, Lorraine Riley, would have made perfect sense. So somebody should, uh, what is it, Jeff Con that? Is that what that is? Right. <laughs> yeah. Martin Gray, who does the Too Dangerous for Girl blog, was kind enough to promote us on Panels.net. Thank you for that. And he wrote, there's a great presentation of the Perez Aries in the recent digital sensation comics with art by Jamal Eichel. Oh, man, I bet that looks awesome. He says, was Rob kidding? He knows Babs was the tennis player, surely. Oh, my God. Sorry, guys. I made a mistake. Jiminy Christmas. <laughs> Hey, I'm still taking it on the chin for this Shazam Tom Mandrake thing, so I know you, I feel your pain. And he says... Tough. Blackguard is pronounced blackguard, Shag. Do you not listen when people yell at you? You know, and that's it's interesting. I don't know if he's kidding or if he's right. I mean, would it be blackguard? Because I've certainly heard that before. I, I assumed it's blackguard. I don't know. You yeah, know? I, don't I mean, he's, he is the Scottish guy from Naboo. He might know this stuff. So. <laughs> he hates that. He hates that. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I loved him in Mary Poppins. Anyway, uh, we got an email from Jeff R. He says, while I can't promise egregiousness, I am going to try and find an omission of the month for this series. Restricting the characters who debuted too late for the first go-around make things considerably harder. For the first issue, the honorable mention goes to Katif, uh, the first vampire, a villain who first appeared in the lame duck Superman run between Crisis and Man of Steel, notable for being one of the earliest stories to show Keith Keith. Keith Giffen's new art style. The winner slot goes to a character who could have been in this issue or the next alphabetically speaking, Cat Grant, the first new addition to Superman's supporting, car- supporting cast with any real staying power in decades. That's a good catch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Superman so again. She's in the Supergirl series, right? Isn't that yeah. What, what's oh, yeah. That's, um, yeah. It's uh, Han Solo's wife. Han Solo's wife, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's weird to think she's not young anymore. 
Because before it was like, oh, you know, he's the old man marrying the little, the young girl. Well, now she's, you know, well, early middle age. And he's just really old. He's really old. You know, I was thinking about the other day. But everyone loves Betty White, right? She's hysterical. She was old in the 80s, dude. That's amazing. She's been old a long time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Jeff says, I like Caress and the other new Fatal Fivers, for that matter, probably more than they deserved. When they brought in the Fatal 500 for the Titan slash Legion crossover, I still wish we'd seen Caress and Mentalia among the various versions instead of just 100 of each of the originals. Interesting. I don't even remember that. I, I need to reread that. Um, heard from our uh, from our buddy Zeb Oswald. He says, you know, Bad Samaritan would work well as a villain in a King Faraday comic. Maybe a spy thriller written by Greg Rucka. That's an interesting suggestion. Yeah. And he says, oh, Batgirl, cool. I like her as a character. I'm okay with her in the, the new 52 look, but I miss Oracle. She had a much bigger impact there than she did in the costume. And I will agree with you there. I prefer Oracle to Batgirl. Not that I have a problem with Batgirl, but Oracle really spoke to me as a character. Uh, we got a message, of course, from Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. He says, uh, Joe Bro offered an unquestionably functional cover. I will not tolerate any questioning of its serviceability. <laughs> he goes on to talk about Young All-Stars. And this is where I think some of my ideas came from I was talking about earlier. He says, I'm not opposed to using analogs or surrogates as continuity patches in the shared universe, but it doesn't work nearly as well to create whole new characters where the originals are legally available, especially when you replace the absolute greatest heroes in continuity with poorly designed megamorts. Iron Monroe and Fury went on to offer some utility, but the rest were straight up kill bait. <laughs> were straight up kill bait. Eyesore is just waiting for another Diablo Island, which is it, which is uh, a Diablo Island massacre, which is the Eclipso thing, or a Starman murder mystery. I think these guys were so subpar they survived by non-virtual being totally forgettable, so no one remembered to kill them off. <laughs> oh god. He goes on to say, Perez's Ares was a Galactus-ish foe for Wonder Woman with a nifty design that stuck as a primary rogue in spite of his absence of personality and his being too stupid to foresee a pro- probable nuclear winter in his bid to start World War III for fighting's sake in his first story arc. He goes on to say, Artemis's costume is gloriously 80s gaudy, so on the nose that if she was actually, I'm sorry, so on the nose that if she wasn't actually from that period, I'd call foul, foul on her being too 1980s. <laughs> and uh, he says, I don't believe I've ever heard all hat, no cattle, and I'm from Texas, but I like it and will and will use it without any attribution, what, attribution whatsoever. So there you go, Rob. He's going to use your phrase and you're not getting any credit. Then he stood up for me because I said Kirby Dots and you correct him with Kirby Crackle and he says both are valid and can be used interchangeably. By the way, it's fair to say I, I'm just pulling out bits and pieces from Diablo Frank's bit because, he, you know, as usual, Diablo Frank uh, writes a, just a massive, massive response to these episodes, which you should go out and read over on Firestorm Fan. They're just fantastic. He goes, uh, uh, I know Brian Murray uh, this is the guy who did the Young All-Star covers. He goes, I know Brian Burry best for ghosting Rob Lakefield on some pages of X-Force before graduating to launching the extreme Superman lift supreme in the early days of Image. He was also swell in Groundhog Day, which is just straight up hilarious. Yeah. Um, he says, Mike Barr comes from an ambivalent place since he was my last, the last writer on my well-adjusted manly Batman of the Bronze Age, but also the deluded and reasonable bastard man-child proto-Miller goddamn Batman of the Outsiders. 
It also doesn't help that his dumb team book euthanized Brave and the Bold. What can I say is that what I can say is that I've never been into Alan Davis's take on the Batman family, and I resent him for going with Detective Comics run instead of the second Aquaman miniseries where he would have been better suited and had a more lasting impact. Davis was too soft focused and nice for Batman, the weak link between the great bar bat collaborators like Aparo and Jeremy Bingham. I am definitely sad that he didn't do Aquaman. Uh, but then we ended up with Craig Hamilton, so that worked out. But, yeah, I mean, the stuff I've seen of, of um, the camo suit Aquaman done by Alan Davis is pretty amazing. So, yeah, what might have been? Well, I, I think you got a little mixed up there. He says the second Aquaman miniseries. Well, That's okay. where we got Kurt Swan. Oh, all right. But, I mean, but Alan Davis was supposed to draw the, the original one. Was he really? I yep. thought he was supposed to draw the second one. No, he was going to do the first oh. one. Oh, so Frank's wrong. Ooh. That never happens. Okay. Uh, Bell Rev was one of the best, most unique, and most enduring contributions the DC Universe made post-crisis. Boom. That could have just been a mic drop right there because he's totally right. Bell Rev is deserving of all its praise, so haters step off. He goes on to say, you know, Brimstone never seemed to get credit for being the last villain to battle and defeat the Justice League of America. Professor Ivo's androids stalked and occasionally killed the former Detroit heroes as individuals after the League was officially disbanded. Brimstone made short work of John Jones when the heroes stupidly assaulted the Fury Fiend in Legends, but Martian Manhunter took out Brimstone almost as an afterthought in Justice League Task Force. You know, that's a good point. You know, I didn't think about the fact that, yes, Brimstone was the final villain of the Justice League before it disbanded. Huh. And I do like how he says Professor Ivo's androids stalked and occasionally killed the Detroit Leaguers. That's funny. <laughs> he says, I knew Firestorm from the Galactic Guardians cartoon and guest appearances and crossovers, but not strictly as a sole hero in his own book. The one time I did read a few issues of Firestorm was during the Blank Slate period, and I didn't stick around. Meanwhile, Captain Adam's series was in the early going. He had similar powers and a personality to Ronnie Raymond Firestorm, plus the art of Pat Broderick, but telling more vital and compelling stories with a better supporting cast and more appropriate villains. So what I'm saying is that not only that I'm sorry, what I'm saying is that I not only follow Firestorm fan for Shag rather than his hero of choice, but I specifically discount Firestorm because of my preference for Captain Adam. Wow. Um, I've read Captain Adam, sir, and you are no Captain Adam is no Firestorm. I'm sorry. I, Pat Broderick's a great artist, but it's a uh, it's pale imitation of the Firestorm comic. Sorry, buddy. He says uh, he and I are on the same page with disliking DC Comics character Shazam slash Captain Marvel. Uh, that's not saying uh, – he's, be, he's being specific to DC Comics version of it. He says, I would be singing a different tune if Thomas and originally planned artist Don Newton had gone through with Captain Thunder, a more thoroughly contemporary revamp of Billy Batson as an African-American youth. The disrespect and shoddy handling shown to Captain Marvel at DC would have been much more uh, – how do you say that word? Vociferously? Vociferously. Vociferously challenged if he was DC's black Superman instead of a dumb little white boy constantly embarrassing himself in Superman's playground. That's, I didn't know about this Captain Thunder redo that they'd planned with, uh, with Captain Marvel being a black kid. I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. That would have been fascinating, and it really would have told a different tale for Captain Marvel, that's for sure. I uh, heard from Philemon, who... Um, normally Philemon is known for saying the exact opposite of logic and reason. Um, and so here he goes on to say, although surrogate is a, I was talking about young all-stars and I was trying to come up with a word 
to describe the young all-stars in comparison to Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And I said, and I said, we came up with surrogate. He goes, although surrogate's a perfectly acceptable word, what you were looking for, Shag, was the word analog, which would be a more accurate term for the way young all-stars filled for the golden age heavy hitters. He is exactly, it's the first time I'm ever going to say these words. Uh, Philemon is exactly right. That is exactly what I was looking for. I was trying to come up with analog. Now, several other people have also said it here in the in the dialogue, but he's right. That's the word I was struggling for. I could not come up with. And um, hopefully I will never have to say he's Philemon is exactly right again. Speaking of saying the exact opposite, here we go. He says, other than the superpowers action figures, was Plastic Man ever really shown to be on Earth-1 prior to Zero Hour? I always saw him as an Earth-2 guy that got brought back into the fold after all these people who cared about continuity stopped making comics. Regardless, he is still a poor man's elongated man. Oh. Okay. You just moving on, or are you are you, are you bracing yourself for? A no, response? just move on. I, I will say I don't agree with him, but I do prefer a elongated man over plastic. So uh, he says, "Blackguard, maybe the Jericho of your new podcast." I'm a huge fan of Booster Gold and Blackguard's status as Booster Gold's first foe. Uh, earns him a special place in my heart. The whole first arc of Booster's initial series, which introduces not only Blackguard, but also the villainous co-conspirator Mind Dancer, before having Booster defeat the whole 1000 Committee with the help of Thorn, is a thing of beauty. It's hard to argue against Blackguard's general genericness, elevated by the so-called Jurgens house style. But as we saw from Bad Samaritan and Black Mace, being generic isn't necessarily a bad thing. Hmm. It's actually sort of interesting. So, good feedback. Um... Bob Fisher from the Superman Forever Radio podcast wrote in. He said, John Burns' Bizarro, uh, you should know, is practically a retelling of the original Bizarro story from Superboy number 68 from 1958. It was meant as a one-shot character created by Otto Bender, but the story was so popular they brought Bizarro back when he turned, and he turned into kind of a goofy character. Find that Superboy story. I think you'll be surprised how close it is to, Bizarro, to Burns' Bizarro origin story. I was sick when I, six when I read that Bizarro Superboy story, and it made me cry. I later had nightmares about that Bizarro story. Wow, look at that. Then we heard from Charles Anthony Coletta. Interesting, he sent us an email with absolutely no text of his own, just a solicitation. So (laughs) thank you for this, Charles. He sent us a solicitation for Crisis on Infinite Earths, deluxe uh, edition hardcover. Okay, you know, we all know about Crisis on Infinite Earths. However, the new edition that hits stores this October will now include History of the DC Universe Volumes 1 and 2. Hmm. Look at that. How cool is that? And it will not increase the price. The price will still only be $49.99 for the hardcover. Very cool. Heard from Mark Sweeney, who does the I'm the Gun blog, which is a, a balloon buster blog that I got so excited about last time. He says, so well, um, I had asked him if our show was what introduced him to balloon buster. He said, no, uh, it wasn't your show that introduced me to the character, but it was definitely shows like yours that inspired me to want to share my love for balloon buster and other DC favorites. He goes, I'll be switching up for a bit for volume two of the I'm a Gun blog, focusing, focusing on a Marvel character that was never able to hold on to her own series. I will continue to mix in other content. In fact, there's a very minor balloon buster cameo that recently came to my attention. And as a completist, I insist on uh, the one final Steve Savage post to get it covered. Very nice. Heard from Professor Alan Quarterbin. He said, I appreciate you mentioning all the podcasters and bloggers in the listing, uh, listening advice who are associated with specific characters that you cover on the show. See, Rob, some people appreciate the information. Anyway, he goes on, it would be nice if there was a single podcast that could potentially cover all of these 1980s characters when their shows show up in the cheap bins. Yes, that would be nice. Signed, Professor Allen from the Quarterbin Podcast. Well, Professor Allen, um, it's interesting that you took issue with us saying, you know, you wish you could get some love when, um, yeah, I went back and checked. Your show was name-checked twice in the feedback last time. 
And when I sent him a message about that, he just goes, oh, technicalities. Thank you, Alan. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> James Querton wrote in to say the new update 87 in podcast is the aftermath of podcasts. Not quite a Laverne and Shirley, but also not a Joni Loves Chachi either. You'll listen for, I'm not sure why I continue to listen to this podcast. I have no shame. You know, James, I I am always defending Aftermash because it's just not as bad as his reputation suggests. But I know I'm fighting an uphill battle, so I'm, we're just going to move on. I I enjoyed Aftermash. Yeah, so. it's it's not as bad as I'll just say it's not it's not great, but it's not as bad as his reputation. Suggests. I think I actually watched Aftermash before Mash, if I remember wow. right. Wow, I got into Mash pretty late. Um, just going to name check some folks uh, and, and read out a couple little bits here. There's a lot of like social media stuff. Uh, heard from Chuck Rodriguez, Dale Russell, sent us some nice comments. Uh, Randy Caldwell, Mr. Perturb, pointed out that in the Black Mace entry, that was Princess Projectra in her original outfit fighting Black Mace, because we were wondering who that was. We heard from David Gallagher, who is a comic author, uh, author of Only Living Boy, High Moon, which was one of the early Zuda, successful Zuda comics. Remember that one about the werewolf? Um, Box 13, Green Lantern, Johnny Dollar Comics. He says he's been binge listening to the Fire and Water podcast, uh, and it's so good. Hashtag Power Records and Who's Who. Thanks for listening, David. Appreciate that. And uh, by the way, he's, he is, uh, you can find him as at David Gallagher on, on Twitter, and he's still publishing a lot of different comics, so check it out. Uh, heard from Speeding Bullet, which is a uh, podcast he goes uh oh, i'm sorry just thank you uh he's giving us a shout out we appreciate that heard from the between the pages blog he uh she points out that yes there was a blue beetle show and there is a link where you can listen to the files right now the blue beetle radio show is on the internet webs folks um it is otrrlibrary.org slash b.html that's otrrlibrary.org slash b.html. Check it out. Blue Beetle Radio Show is right right there. Hurry up. Let's finish this up. You want to listen to it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jose Rivera, he shared some images of his just recently bound All-Star Squadron collection. He got um, bound himself. Well, he sent it off for binding, and it is gorgeous. And they use that shot from History of the DC Universe with that V formation, the All-Star Squadron. Just love it. Yeah, those books are astounding. Yeah, well done, Jose. Uh, Rolled Spine Podcast, <laughs> they tweeted, I said, uh, I guess they're they're feeling a little sad because they, they put on a new episode. They were afraid people weren't going to listen. So besides, there's a new Fire and Water Podcast, Who's Who Update 87 this Monday, so everyone will be listening to that instead of us, including Frank. <laughs> Crack me up. Bradley Null, once again, over on Instagram, uh, posted a lot of shots of Who's Who. Thank you for that, Bradley. Ryan Daly who does the Flowers and Fishnets uh, Black Canary podcast, the Dead Both and Spies podcast, and the Secret Origins podcast, which we've mentioned many times on this show. Ryan is a past Yellow Dot Award winner. He's a past uh, Steam Award winner. Ryan's been an integral commenter for a long, long time in this show. But, folks, just to let you know, since he started his Secret Origins podcast, um, apparently Ryan is, can, couldn't be bothered to leave any feedback now that he's a big hotshot podcast producer. And in fact, I pressed him for feedback and he responded with, I'm glad I never read Young All-Stars and I never will. And that's it. That's all we got. He refuses to comment. So apparently he's just too big for his britches. So thanks, buddy. Then uh, there's a lot of folks who shared our show uh, through their social media, like posting it on their Facebook page or retweeted on Twitter or Tumblr or whatever. So just want to give a read to this list as fast as humanly possible. Uh, Alana Oxenfree, Andy Capellish, Between the Pages, Boosterific, Brittany Lynn Thiel, Buck, um, that's Buckerlet, Buckerlet, Buckerlet. Uh, Booster Gold, funny spelling, Christopher Jones Art, Chuck Rodriguez, Cindy Womack, Count Drunkula, David Gallagher, David Morgan, Derek William Crabb, Derek Jazina, Eli Perrin, 
FKA Jason, that's our buddy Jay Jones, I, Icon UK01, Invader Sin, Jason Lafferty, Jay Bamberhill, Jeffrey Brown, Con L, Corn Industries, Kylio71, Legion Bloggers, Magistrate of Mediocrity, Max Romero, Michael Bailey, Michael Wagner, Mikey Flash, Mr. Perturbed, Nightwing Lover, Not Guano Man, Paul Loves Comics, Pedro Agnosto, Randy Micah Smith, uh, Rodak Gunzrilla, Rolled Spine Podcast, Shane, who goes by Boston Brand, Siskoid, Superman, look at that, Superman retweeted us, I can't believe it, Ted Cord, The Unsettled, Tigress Croc, Tony D, Van Z, Willie Yarbrough, Young Justice Wiki, and Zeb Oswalt. Amazing. Now, there was, there was uh, just want to give a shout out, thank you to Michael Bailey, who gave us a uh, shout out on his uh, Fortress of Bailey-Tude website, and under the Who's Who section, thank you for that. And we have two, count them, two Yellow Dot Award winners this time. Can you believe it? Amazing. After you, sir. Uh, the first uh, winner is Derek Crabb from the Fan Holes Podcast. He submitted uh, another one of his uh, Fumetti's, and it's got Jonah Hex chastising Spawn, and he's saying, fella right here, all hat, no cattle. And Spawn <laughs> is saying, I don't even know what that means. Uh, yeah, And he's wearing a hat. He's wearing a hat, yeah. I love, uh, I love these little things Derek puts together. So he absolutely, and there's a there's a uh, placard there for the Who's Who update, which makes the series kind of look more fun than it really was. So, uh, it's, a, it's a really beautiful photo, and uh, I these are these are always really enjoyable to see. So Derek, enjoy your Yellow Dot Award. Yep. And uh, second, uh, the other Yellow Dot Award winner is Van Z. And uh, he wrote, uh, I'll explain the message in a moment. He goes, this is what happens when you find cheap back back issues. And inside a frame hanging on his wall, opened up so you can see the full cover, are two issues of Who's Who. He has them displayed on his wall as artwork. What a thing of genius. You know, basically you just get some extra copies of Who's Who. You go get a frame from Michael's or something like that. And he's got two set in one frame. It's the, uh, the Flash issue from the original Who's Who run. And uh, the F's, and then it looks like this would be, oh, the C, C issue for Composite Superman and Cyborg. And uh, they just, they look beautiful on his wall. So well done, Van Z. Very clever. Very nice. So, woo! That is it, folks. That is Who's Who, Update 87, Volume 2, in the can. Uh, thank you to everyone who wrote in. You guys are amazing. Really appreciate your feedback. Uh, you can send us more feedback. Uh, first, check out the Tumblr. For some of the images from this book, Rob, what, what's the Tumblr address? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. And the email is firewaterpodcast.comcast.net. If you want to leave comments, head over to firestormfan.com. That's where the majority of the comments are and where you can go back and forth with a lot of the folks and get into the, the nitty-gritty. You can also leave comments at aquamanshrine.net. Um, you can find my friend Rob over on uh, Twitter and Facebook under the same handle, Aquaman Shrine. You can find me. Uh, under Twitter, Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest as Firestorm Fan. And uh, I guess you should, we should mention our sites, firestormfan.com and aquamanshrine.net. Uh, I already did that, didn't I? Never mm-hmm. mind. It's very, it's very late. Anyway, and I guess that's it, right? Yeah, I think so. Awesome. Love it. I can't wait for the next issue. Um, there's a couple of cool characters in the next one. I'm just going to say that. And that's going to leave you wondering, who's next? Dr. Ubix. (laughs) 
Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. the underworld to smash gangland comes the friend of the unfortunate enemy of criminals the mysterious all-powerful character with a problem to the police a crusader for law in reality dan garrett a rookie patrolman loved by everyone but suspected by none of being the blue beetle as the blue beetle he hides behind a strange mask and a suit of impenetrable blue chain armor flexible as silk but stronger than steel. <laughs> 